This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is this inflation is already a major problem in this country and inflation is generally characterized by an increase in consumer prices and then people ask for higher wages to meet the consumer prices what then happens the uh, their employers all have to raise prices to meet the high wages they're now paying that leads prices to rise even more. It's a vicious cycle of inflation, inflation, inflation. And the problem is this. There was a book marketed recently which promises to make you a billionaire if you read it. And here's the problem. It has just reached the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, so a whole lot of people are about to become billionaires if they haven't already. And I can't imagine that's going to help the inflation problem. Uh, The book is How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. And I'm very, very pleased uh, to be joined by a longtime friend of mine, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, and the owner of this entire network, a self-made billionaire, the one and only John Katsimatidis. John, thanks for staying up late with us. I've been eager to talk with you about this book for a while now. Well, I I had a choice. Uh, Don't go to sleep or wake up at 1 (laughs) o'clock. So what did you pick? I didn't go to sleep. All right, okay. Well, you, we'll let you uh, we'll let you get a nap in uh, in a little while, uh, John. I want to talk to you about the book and congratulations on making the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. But first, I have to ask you about the 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 breaking news over the weekend. Everybody's going to be soliciting your opinion on it. I know you uh, commented on one show over the weekend about it, but a lot of folks are eager to get your take on the forthcoming indictment and arrest by the Manhattan District Attorney of your uh, longtime friend, Donald Trump. I know you guys go back about four decades. I know you've interviewed the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg. What's your take on this uh, this forthcoming arrest, John? Well, I know Donald Trump for about 40 years. But, you know, it's hard to say friend or acquaintance because a friend is somebody that you call up and say, what are you doing tonight? Let's go to dinner. Well, I've never done that. Right. Okay. But I've known him for 40 years. Uh, we were on the board of the Police Athletic League together. Uh, we were friends of Mr. Bob Morgator. Uh So I would call him an acquaintance. And and I always thought he was a decent guy. I mean, uh, I never did any business with them. And a lot of people uh, – so, look, I was uh, – he was still a member of the Police Athletic League board uh, when he became president. So we had a president that was a board member, which is uh, great. And, and so uh, some people are criticizing him for 
calling for protests in light of what happened to, with January 6th, is saying he should have specified peaceful demonstration. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I don't think there should be any protests. I mean, uh, I, I believe that, uh, and I've said this uh, to my daughter, and I've said this to uh, other people that I know, that uh, uh, January 6th, we still don't know 100 percent mm. of the truth. And I believe there were agitators within that group that created more of a problem than there should have been. Uh, I believe that uh, if there's another demonstration, there'll be paid agitators within that group to stir the pot. So I told my daughter, I don't think she should... uh, participate. And I told my friends, I don't think they should. Yeah. Well, that's a very sound advice, very sound uh, fatherly advice. All right. I know you have a whole hour on the radio later today to break this down and I'm sure you will, but I've been eager to talk with you about how far do you want to go? I've got my copy. I've been reading it so far. I'm not a billionaire, but I'm hoping by the time I get to the end, I will be. Uh, What made you, John, you've done a lot. You've uh, mastered the fields of uh, groceries, oil, energy, gasoline, real estate, uh, radio, biofuels, and a whole lot more, Uh, airline travel, and uh, some things you've done, I learned from this book for the first time. What made you want to write a book for the first time? I don't imagine you did it for the money. No, money. No, definitely not. Uh, You know, I'm reaching 70 years old. I'm I'm there already. Uh, And um, uh, my kids... uh, and I don't have any grandkids yet. Uh, so there's really two reasons. The family reason is um, if I do have grandkids, if a bus hits me before that, I want them to know uh, who mm. their grandfather was. Uh, and I think that's a, to write a little bit about uh, where we came from, a little bit of our family history. Uh, and I thought that was that would be the right thing to do. Uh the other reason is um, I'm an immigrant. I came over at six months old, and New York is the greatest city in the world. And uh, uh, there's a song that says, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> well, I grew up in Harlem, and I, want, you know, we were, I worked for the Police Athletic League for 40 years. And I want kids in Harlem, kids from the inner city, to know that if you keep your nose clean and work hard, that and, and I say this to them, if I made it, you can make it too. So uh, I, I, so it's a combination of reasons of uh, trying to, to to teach and put my arm around some of the kids and and let them know that if they work hard, you know. You, somebody else had said to me, a friend of mine said to me, "Well, you know, the harder you work." The luckier you get, you know, because I, sometimes I say, well, I got lucky. Right, right. Well, it's true. Well, I, I the feel that— The harder you work, the luckier you yeah, get. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly been been my experience, and I, I owe so much of whatever uh, success that I've had on the radio largely to you, but you work pretty hard to get into that position uh, to it's, to benefit from luck. And it, I'm struck by a few things in listening to you talk. One, 
it, what you said in terms of your story being an inspiring one for other working class and lower middle class young people, we so often hear stories of uh, millionaire athletes or um, Hollywood stars that happen to be minorities. And they always say it's important for younger folks who look like me to see that they can make it too. And it strikes me that you're doing that same thing. You're saying to somebody that may come here as an immigrant or somebody that may have to work their way up from nothing, you too in this country can make uh, to, can make yourself a monstrous success. It's absolutely true. Uh, it's the greatest country in the world. And uh, uh, I, I want to make sure the message does get through. Don't forget, my, my, my parents brought me over when I was six months old. We lived on 135th Street by City College, and my father worked as a busboy, never made more than $100 a week. Uh, and uh, I ended up going to Brooklyn Tech, the same place that your dad uh, went That's to. That's right. Uh, and I learned, I'll tell you, it was the greatest school, uh, Brooklyn Tech. I learned a lot. I, I, uh, I hung out with kids that were, were uh, very diverse. Uh, and uh, I think that was part of my head start. What I like about this book, I mean, I like a lot about it because I've known you a long time and I think I know you pretty well, but uh, there were so many stories in here that I had not heard. But I also enjoyed that this book is sort of part memoir, part instruction book, and each chapter sort of encapsulates a little bit of your personal philosophy. And you kind of go from illustrating stories from your own personal life to including pop cultural allusions to things like Planet of the apes to going all the way back to the wisdom of Socrates and ancient Greek philosophers, all while maintaining a pretty coherent narrative chronologically. It was very uniquely uniquely done. How long did it take you to write this book, John? Well, yeah, I started about three years ago, uh, and then COVID hit, and then I put it on the shelf for a while. Uh, uh, and I, I guess uh, we, we rewrote it a few times. Uh, and picked out chapters, uh, I would say two, three years. You mentioned your upbringing. You came here as an immigrant. You write in the book that uh, not only could you not speak a word of English, you couldn't speak a word of any other language unless you include goo goo gaga. Uh, Tell me about how your family came here to America and what led your family from uh, from Greece, although I, I understand there's some dispute about whether that island was actually owned by the Italians or owned by Greece at the time that you're that you were born there and how your family came to the United States? Well, no dispute. Uh, my two grandfathers, uh, my mother's part of the family came from Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. Um, and my, uh, and my uh, father's father came from uh, the island of Nisidos, where, where uh, we talk about a lot. And they both came in 1913. In 1913, that's 110 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left my dad in the old country to take care of the three sisters and, and the mother. Uh, his two brothers came in about 1925. And uh, my father worked for the Italian government. All those islands were owned by the Italy. Mm-hmm. My, my father worked for the Italian government. He, um, uh, he spoke Italian fluently. 
Um, and I'm 28. When you, if you take my DNA test, I'm 28% Italian. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and uh, I'm 60% Macedonian Greek, I guess, because my mom came from northern, uh, where Constantinople is, that's northern Greece, around where Macedonia is. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, the, the one thing, my father worked on the lighthouse for 17 years by himself on a piece of rock. And after World War II, uh, the, uh, the Italian government was on the wrong side. So uh, the, the British came down, and to punish the Italian government, they took those islands along the Turkish coast, which is 12 of them, and said, we're going to give these islands back to Greece. And my father lost his job with the Italian government mm. watching the lighthouse, went back to his island, uh, Nisidos, where he's from. Um, and he needed to, he wanted to get married and begin a life for himself. And uh, uh, that's a separate book that's going to come someday uh, about my mom. She ended up marrying my mom. Uh, I was born. And uh, his two brothers brought him to America. And the story I tell many a time, Frank, his two brothers had to sign on a dotted line that if he wasn't able to pay his bills, he would have to pay them. And there's an old Greek saying called philotimo, means you never embarrass your family, you never embarrass where you came from. And my father worked seven days a week not to ever borrow money from uh, uh, his uh, brothers. Uh, five days a week he worked in Longchamps, uh, which was on 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue as a busboy because he couldn't speak fluent. Um, English. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, he would go to Astoria, work as a waiter because he spoke fluent Italian. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all about hard work. And uh, uh, he worked seven days a week in order not to, to, not to go to his brothers to borrow any money. Uh, tell me about your uh, childhood, John. You mentioned growing up in Harlem. How'd your family end up in Harlem? And between the time that you that you came here to the time that you ended up in Brooklyn Tech, what was uh, what was life like for you as a child, as a as a young person? Well, it was on 135th Street, and it was a a lot of uh, uh, Spanish, a lot of uh, uh, Irish. A lot of Greeks, um, uh, a lot of blacks. I mean, it was just, it was a melting pot of working people. And uh, uh, when it came to go to school, I went to PS 192, which was across the street uh, from City College. And it it was tough going uh, to uh, kindergarten, not being able to speak English. And whatever English I learned, uh, as I said to people, I learned from my five-inch television set. Mm, mm. I, I know you were doing a lot of radio listening back then as well, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I got to become a radio listener. I remember my first transistor radio had three transistors in it. And now my iPhone has 
two billion transistors. <laughs> if people are just tuning in, we're talking with John Katzmatidis. In addition to being the owner of the Red Apple Group, which is a wild, a wildly successful business that uh, incorporates uh, more businesses than I can count on two hands, he's the host of the nationally syndicated radio show, The Cats Roundtable, host every night on WABC of Cats and Cosby, and the author of the new Wall Street Journal best-selling book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. You ask such a good question at the beginning of the book, John, when you talk about making a trip to Federal Hall, which is where George Washington was sworn in. And uh, last I heard, they still had not been successful in tearing down his statue from in front of Federal Hall. And you ask the question, why isn't every child taken on a tour of Federal Hall to learn something about American values? It sounds, even though you were describing a trip that you took as an adult, it sounds to me like your education was not lacking in a foundation for civics and for a lot of the values that made America the country it is. Well, I went to public school. I knew that Henry Hudson sailed up the river uh, in uh, uh, 1604, was it? Or something like that. And the name of his boat was the Half Moon. And we we learned that in school. And uh, uh, when I was introduced to Federal Hall, I, I really was impressed. And I said, why don't more people in New York City know that Federal Hall was the first capital of the United States? Right. And uh, we had a, a little bit of ceremony. Uh, I remember, I think we... Uh, Newt Gingrich was there that day. Uh, and you know what I made sure I do, like I do so many times, Frank? We had about 200 or 250, something like that, uh, uh, people in the audience. Before we were ready to leave, I made everybody stand up and sing God Bless America. Mm. Mm. And that made my heart feel good. Being in Federal Hall, the first capital of the United States, and and singing God Bless America. And, and that's what, you know, I'm an immigrant. I'm not born here, but I, you know, I love America. Uh, but, and and you, right now, I think we're, we're, we're in times that we're being challenged. And you ask such a good question, though, because I never went there on a class trip either. I didn't go there until I was 24 years old. And it is incredibly impressive. And a visit from, I mean, every school, at the very least in the New York area, should make a trip there. It's very convenient to get to. It's it's free uh, to go to, uh, especially for students. And uh, to th- it really does instill a love of learning about American history and about uh, the things that made this country great. Now, the aspect of this book that I was most interested in was not necessarily how I can become a billionaire, but it's the lessons that I can learn from your father and your mother, because I now have a son of my own. He's only 16 months old, but I'd love for him to have the same kind of work ethic, the same kind of drive to succeed that you have. And I'm curious, what values did your father, your parents, I should say, instill in you that drove you to reach unreachable heights and to be, go from being an immigrant with no money to being a billionaire? Well, getting a good education. My mother, my mother was very well educated. Uh, she comes from an educated family in Constantinople, which was, uh, you know, a big deal at that time. And it was very important 
so my mother uh, was the educator, and my father was the guy that that um, worked, you know, a hundred hours a week to make sure there's uh, bread and chicken on the on the table, and uh, uh, so that's part of the problem we have. <coughs> And some of our kids in New York, where right now, uh, some of the kids in my inner city, 70% of them don't have a mother and father. They, they only have a mother or only have a father. And, and, and I think that puts them at a disadvantage. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up during the days of uh, Leave it to Beaver on, uh, on uh, television, uh, or where the average American family had to have a mother and a father, and, and that's the way it was. But things are changing, and uh, I'm not sure they're changing for the better. Um, so uh, having the right education. And the other thing that the kids need is uh, the fact that uh, you need mentors. Mm. Uh, and one of my reasons for my success, I had about 12 mentors, Frank, because in life, you come, uh, you go to many forks in the road, and whether you zig left or you zig right, uh, or the right fork in the road, it's going to determine your life, and you have so many decisions to make. And I remember uh, uh, having mentors that are, were much older than me, but I listened to them, and then the big decision that one has to make is. Well, if it's good stuff or bad stuff, how do you accept the good stuff and and ignore the bad stuff? We're talking, and, with, uh, we're talking with John Katsimatidis. He's the author of the book, How Far Do You Want to Go? In terms of that, mentorship, which I agree with you, is I've always thought was important. But in reading your book, I see the pivotal role that it played in your life. One of your early mentors gave you an opportunity in the grocery business, and it led you to one of those forks in the road that you're describing. You talk about the the emphasis that your mother placed on education. You were going to New York University, one of the best schools in the country, school that I went to, and you made the decision to leave before graduating from NYU to take advantage of an opportunity in the grocery business. Tell me about that. Tell me about that fork in the road, your decision-making process, and why you chose to leave college. I did not leave. Uh, I was eight credits short from graduating. Uh, uh, while, while going to NYU for four years, uh, I was working part-time to earn money to, to run my car, to earn money to have money in my pocket, well, you're not going to go to your father that's only making a hundred dollars a week sure. and tell him you need uh, $10 to fill up the gas tank. You know, I, I can't do that. Uh, and, uh, uh, I worked for this guy, Tony. Uh, I called him my older brother. I called him my cousin and he wasn't related, but, uh, he, I guess he was one mentor. Uh, and, uh, uh he worked uh, 70 hours a week and, uh, he said to me, uh, I'm, uh, he had a second store, and he said to me, John, uh, my uncle is running that store. I'm having troubles with my uncle. We argue three times a week. I don't want it to be uh, a problem with the family. 
I want you to take over my half of the store. I said, but I'm going to school, Tony. He says, I want you to take over one half of my store. I said, so I signed a note for $10,000, $1,000 a month for 10 months. I take over half the store, and I'm going to school. You know, in those days, NYU, it was five days a week for school. It wasn't the way to have a teaser. Right. Uh, and so I go to school from 9 o'clock uh, in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. I go to the store at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, work to midnight. And then uh, three days a week, I would get up at 4 in the morning, go to Hunts Point Market, and work hard, put good old American know-how in, uh, in the store. And guess what? The store became successful. The, the sales doubled. And you, you know when partners make money? Guess what? They never argue. <laughs> Nick was Nick was the the guy that was uh, his uh, his uncle. Me and Nick never had one argument, never. And uh, the store became successful. And at the age, uh, you know, at that time, uh, when engineers, I was going to school for being an engineer, and I I I didn't drop out. I was just eight credits short. But engineers would make, uh, I forget what it was, like $30,000 a year. Uh, and that's about $250 a week, or which I thought, a little less than $300 a week. Um, no, $400. Um, I was making $1,000 a week. Uh, yeah, so why go to be why go to get those eight credits to be an engineer when you were already doing better than what engineers were making? It, it makes a lot of sense, and uh, something tells me uh, uh, by the looks well, of things you made the right decision. My my mother cried, my father yelled. Why did my father uh, yell when my mother cried? You know, they wanted me to, to have, be the, have the education. They said we sent you to school to become educated. Not to become a Hamali. You know what Hamali is? That was a Greek Turkish word of the guys that would carry crates on their back. And they were ashamed of me for that. Uh, and look, I kept working. And the other fork in the road is I met so many people in the food business. Mm. And they became my mentors. My, uh, my ice cream man. Uh, my uh, my my milkman, uh, Bill Myers, and uh, my lawyer, Sam Stein, and I, you know, so I came to Forks in the Road, but I learned from them. You know, I was 20 years old, 22 years old. I learned from them, and they liked me so much. I don't. I didn't have any banking, so when. When I wanted to open up a second store, a third store, my vendors liked me so much, and they figured if they advanced me money to open up more stores, you'd carry their products. I carry their products, right. and 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 now and and now they'll, they'll, they'll do well, and uh, that's what happened. I I had no bank financing, or my entire expansion was paid uh, by my vendors. Uh, and uh, I learned a lot from them. John, and, uh, I, I, had, I, I grew to 10 stores by the age of 23, 24, 
and I was making a million dollars a year, which was a hell of a lot of money. At, at 24 years old. Yes. And that's when a million dollars was a lot of money. John, let me ask you to pause. I know you've been a trooper and staying up this late already, but uh, if you could stick around a bit longer, I have a few more uh, questions about some of the co- stuff that you cover in the later portions of the book. Can you stick around? I'll be, I'm around. As outstanding. We're talking with John Katsimatidis. He is the author of the new book, best-selling book, excuse me, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. In just a moment, I'm going to ask John why. As a self-made billionaire who could seemingly do whatever he wants, he would choose to run for mayor of New York City, which is not exactly a job that's free of stress. We'll get into that, uh, his forays into the radio business and the lessons that he learned about uh, a wide variety of subjects and some of the lessons that you can learn if you check out the book, How Far Do You Want to Go? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Only in America can a guy from anywhere go to sleep The great Jay Black from Jay and the Americans. Uh, I actually had the privilege of seeing him perform this song live, and I got to see him do it for free 10 years ago when uh, John Katsimatidis was running for mayor, and he put on a a series of free plays, uh, Fiorello, with with, um, the incredible actor Tony LoBianco in the title role of Fiorello LaGuardia and um, Jay and the Americans. And it was a really a campaign like no other. And uh, we're talking with John Katsimatidis about his life, his career, and his new book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. If you want to pick up a copy, you can order it at uh, catsroundtable.com. It's also available on Amazon. Just search How Far Do You Want to Go or John Katsimatidis. John, tell me about your decision back in 2013 to run for mayor. You had been thinking about running for mayor in 2009, then they upended the term limits law. Uh, Rumor had it that you were thinking about running for mayor going all the way back to 2005. What made you in 2013 finally decide to take the plunge? I had a philosophy. My philosophy was keep growing your mind, keep growing yourself, keep uh, doing things until you reach your your point of uh how do you call it frank uh your, your point of incompetence <laughs> right right the peter when principle you, when you because at some point you're going to find out holy crap i i'm doing too much i'm incompetent and the scary thing about it is i'm still trying to reach that point of incompetence and i'm ending up uh, at this age, over 70 again, uh, of working as harder than I was 10 years ago. Uh, and lately, uh, what I did uh, in the last few years, uh, I'm buying things that I'm going to have fun with. 
I'm buying things to help make a difference in the, in, in the world. Um, when I was running for mayor, I wanted to, to make a difference. Uh, when I was running in 2009, Blumberg decided to run for a third term. I said, I'm not going to challenge him because I wasn't going in to challenge people. I was going in just to, you know, to, to do the right job and run our city. And in 2013, I had a dream. I had a dream of recreating the World's Fair. And I was promoting that, that I was going to do the 2014 or 2015 World's Fair. And that would have happened, Frank. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I guess it didn't happen. Uh, I lost the Republican primary to Joe Loda. But Joe is a very smart guy. But I don't think I lost to Joe. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was running Joe's campaign. And so I really lost to Rudy Giuliani uh, on the Republican. I also had the, uh, the uh, Liberal Party ticket because I used to run things for uh, uh, Bill Clinton. And I figured I, I am not going to run as a Democrat. Uh, so if I had the Liberal Party ticket, people that want to vote for me and people that hate voting in the Republican line, they'll vote for me on a Liberal line ticket. And uh, that's why I ran as a Republican liberal. And uh, uh, my mistake might have been where they convinced me to pull out of the Republican uh, race when I lost the Republican uh, primary. And uh, what do we lose by that? So, like 53, 40. Right. Uh, like yeah, that. it was a, a stone's throw. I mean, it was a, a razor thin margin. I, you know, was I am and was a registered independent, so I didn't get the opportunity to vote for you. I was one of those people that was urging you to stay in the race as a liberal candidate. And I, I suspect that the outcome may have been a little bit different and uh, we could have saved a, a little bit of heartache uh, in this city. But it wasn't. Well, it was. It wasn't. You never know what would have happened if I would have ran. You would have had Joe Loda on the Republican side, me and the liberal side in the middle, and uh, Bill de Blasio on the Democratic side. And uh, I was hoping at that time I'll even get uh, Bill Clinton's uh, nod because uh, I used to work for him. But but you, it was it would have been a three way race. Uh, Joe Loda had no money. Uh, Bill de Blasio had no money. And I had money I could spend to get myself better known. So you don't know what fork in the road would have happened for New York City if something would have changed. It's um, it was not just the World's Fair, though. You ran on a, a platform of uh, maintaining uh, things like stop, question and frisk and a lot of the policing policies of the Giuliani and Bloomberg era, many of which de Blasio subsequently did away with. You ran on a platform of uh, a, a monorail system and, uh, you know, building above way to serve underserviced parts of the city that didn't get mass transit. You said each borough would have their own deputy mayor to sort of streamline services to that borough and really a lot of uh, progressive things and a lot of visionary things, real progressive, not the way they use that term today. I'm curious, uh, John, it sounds like you might have a twinge of regret about not staying in the race as the liberal candidate. If you could do it over again, is there anything else about that race that you would do differently? If I could do it over again, uh, and by the way, John McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin was my uh, poster. 
Uh, and he never told me I was uh, losing uh, Manhattan. I figured I was here. And uh, the, the fact was that uh, um, I learned a lot. Um, where if I ran again, I would not make those mistakes. And Staten Island, I won Staten Island. Yeah, you won, you won the smartest boroughs. A, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to put a uh, unirail uh, on on the uh, uh, to connect the transit system of Staten Island to the transit system of Brooklyn uh, through the Verrazano Bridge by putting in a unirail or a monorail, which goes on the side of the bridge, uh, and uh, it could have been done. And we would have had a, a, a World's Fair, too. That would have been done. You've indicated that you might have one race left in you for something. Can you give us any sort of a hint, John, as to what uh, what that race might be, what that race might look like, and what a timetable for it might be? Well, look, Frank... You know, I always look at opportunities. And if the opportunity in 2013 was there was no incumbent mm-hmm. mayor. There was nobody in the incumbency, so I'm not going against anybody. Uh, and the other thing I did, I, I, didn't, I never criticized any of the people I was running against. I just told people what a good job I would do and what I would do. And that's what I, I, that's what I would hope other uh, politicians would do the same thing. Uh, I didn't. I didn't criticize anybody. Uh, and uh, uh, in the future, I, I don't think I don't want to be a, a senator. I don't want to be a congressman. You know why? You don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You go to Washington and 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 you vote. You know, you're not able to fix anything. Yeah, you so you're that, you're an executive. You're a CEO. I'm, you're an, the- I'm an executive. I'm there to fix things. Uh, I've been fixing companies all my life. Uh, I had a good time fixing it. I, uh, two or three major companies. I took the. I took them out of bankruptcy, saved thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs, and and uh, and I fixed them. They were broken. That's why they were in bankruptcy. Uh, and and uh, right now, uh, my son is uh, uh, working very hard. He he wants to buy more companies and. And uh, I'm giving him the, the the football to run with. I'm playing with, with uh, you know, I'm overseeing the company. I'm I'm doing what I can every day. But I, you know, I enjoy uh, helping run WABC every day at five o'clock. I go downstairs and do the five o'clock show. Uh, I'm enjoying uh, having the Ferry Hawks in Staten Island. So I'm I'm I. And I'm I'm looking for other companies that I'm going to buy uh, to have fun. So uh, maybe I'll buy a movie, well, movie studios or something. Or maybe uh, you know I'll make movies. But uh, I'm looking for me. I'm looking to have fun. If there's an opportunity uh, and and I need it to to run anything in government, then I may do that. John, let me ask you about the radio business, because you talk about fixing broken companies, failing companies. You know, I've been a fan of the radio station WABC my whole life, even before I I worked here. 
many years ago. And it was very sad for me to see as a listener and as a longtime fan of the station to see WABC sort of fall into the doldrums. The entire weekend had essentially become wall-to-wall infomercials. The station sounded stale. The programming was weak. It did not sound like a local radio station, and that was reflected in the ratings. At the time that you took it over, I don't even think it was in the top 20, and the ratings come out later today. We'll see where it is. It was number 28. Uh, So, and, and which goes to show what you've done in getting Getting it into a top 10 station for the first time in literally decades is really something of a miracle. Tell me, John, about your decision to jump into the radio business. And did being a fan of radio help you be an effective owner? Well, it's again, it's walking the road. Uh, Our mutual friend, Jerry Crowley, uh, after I ran for mayor, uh, my even though I lost, my popularity rate was high and my uh, and Jerry, we have dinner with him one night, and Jerry says, you should have a radio show. So, you know, me, I, I, you know, I said, okay. So we started with one hour, you were my producer, and we put a radio show together, then we went to two hours. I don't remember. You probably remember better than I do. Well, I yeah, I remember the, uh, the the those early days. They were a lot of fun, but it was uh, it was it was wild. But um, and then the decision to actually own a radio station was that a decision that was that just an opportunity that came upon you that you decided to take advantage of, or was well, it? Well, the first thing is I was working at nine seventy part time to, uh, to 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 running the business, and then uh, um, at one time. WOR was being sold, and it was being sold for $30 million or something like that. And the first time I ever yelled at Jerry, I said, Jerry, why didn't you tell me? I would have wrote a check. And uh, it got sold to, I guess, iHeart, and things moved on. Uh, But later on, uh, somebody came up to see, see me. It was actually Tony Carbonetti. Uh, and says, uh, there's an opportunity to buy WABC. Uh, and I said, how much? They gave me the price. I said, okay. I didn't argue. I just said, okay. And guess what? I did very little due diligence. I didn't care. I just wanted to buy it. And I wrote a check. And uh, the rest is history. It certainly worked out uh, pretty well. There's a lot of exciting things still uh, forthcoming, and I have a feeling that we're going to go from being in the top ten to being number one for the first time, I think, uh, since uh, the first time Cousin Brucey was here. We're going to continue with John Katz and Matides in just a bit. If you haven't yet picked up the book, How Far Do You Want to Go?, be sure to get a copy. You can get it on Amazon, but you can also go to catsroundtable.com and order a signed copy on there. There. Lessons from a common sense billionaire. There's some great stories in here. We're not even scratching the surface. There's some great lessons that you can learn from your own life. And there's uh, a, a lot of entertaining uh, ways that these stories are told. We're going to continue with John Katsimatidis in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined by our owner, John Katsimatidis. He's also the author of the new book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. A lot of great stories, not just about politics, not just about business, but a lot of great success stories from the field of charity uh, charity and philanthropy. And John, I know your partner in all that, and some would say that she does the lion's share of of a lot of the work, has been your wife, Margot. For folks that don't know the story of you and Margot, Tell me about uh, your courtship of Margot. How did you guys meet initially? John, I got you. Yeah, Margot was from Indianapolis, Indiana, middle America. And she came to New York to dance with the Harkness Ballet. And uh, she had some, you know, how ballerinas, they get injuries. And she came to... uh, for a job, and we were just setting up our office. We had about five, six stores at the time, and hired her. And uh, we worked together, and uh, um, so we're, we're, we've been together for over fifty years now. And uh, she, uh, and uh, my my comment in the book was, uh, no matter how tough of a day I had, when I come home. She made me smile. Well, that, that's wonderful. It makes me smile every time uh, that, I, that I've seen her. So uh, I'm not surprised that it's a daily occurrence for you. You mentioned your father. You mentioned his disappointment that you didn't graduate from, from college. There did, though, come a time where your father came to work for you. How long did your father work for you? What did he do? And uh, why did he stop working for you? Well, my father uh, uh, retired from long champs. Uh, he was getting his pension. He worked there for, for almost 30 years. And uh, uh, the, the funny one, by the way, and then after he didn't want to stay home, he came to work for me as a store manager in the store number one, which was the Red Apple store on 87th Street. Uh, and uh, we worked together there. Uh, and uh, he worked very, very hard. And when he was 88 years old, uh, he said to me, my mom died when, uh, boy, he, when he was about 78. And he says to me, I'm going to get married again. I said, what? At 88 years and, old. At 88 years old. So he goes back to the old country. And this lady uh, that, that he knew from the old country that was never married, she was 58 years old. Guess what? He brings her over, ma- marries her. And he says to me, my son, I don't want to be by myself, and I don't want to be a burden upon you. And that was the reason he wanted to do it. He, he, he didn't want to be by himself at 88 years old, and he didn't want to be, be a burden on me. And they got married, and, and uh, he lived well, and he lived to the age of 94, 95, and uh, he passed away. Uh, and it was a mistake made by hospitals and the long story that still pains me um, because he would have lived for another few years after that. Uh, and uh, then uh, after he passed away, she passed away, passes away a year later, and she's like 66. 
Oh, that's I mean, that's a sad story. I mean, it is yeah. heartwarming on the one hand, but it's uh, it's sad on the other hand. Hey, John, speaking of parenting, I know how proud you are of your two children. And I, I know them both. And they're they're great uh, people, very successful in their own right in a variety of different spheres. I see the hours that you work now and you essentially work 18, 19 hours a day, maybe more now from what I see. I can't imagine what you were doing when you were building a, a grocery empire, an oil empire and everything else. And I'm asking this from a selfish perspective. How did you balance being sort of a workaholic and needing to work as hard as you needed to to be successful and to achieve all your goals, all your dreams, and at the same time being a present father and an active father. How do you balance working like crazy and being an a, 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 a aware and alert parent? Well, I love my kids. Uh, I always come home to see them. Uh, I'd come home to see them before I would have to go out again at night to to an industry function or a business dinner. Uh, but I made sure I, when they were very, very young that I'd come home, give them a hug. And by the way, uh, whenever they were off from school, the three days or four days during Thanksgiving, the week before Christmas and New Year's, the, the week of Easter, I always took them away. I always wanted to, I loved my kids. I always took them away. The other thing was, I made sure they both went to NYU. I'm not a parent that would just send off their kids to, to Boise, Idaho, or to, to any place else. I wanted my kids in, in New York. I wanted them to, to give, be able to give them a hug every day uh, in the morning and a hug every day at night. And uh, uh, my daughter uh, completed uh, uh, Stern Business School in three and a half years, wow. record time. And uh, my son completed it, and uh, they both, uh, uh, they were always close to me. And um, uh, I'm, I'm, I always try to stay near my kids. I don't, I, I think parents are, are wrong sometimes to send them away. You send them away, you're going to lose them. Uh, I didn't want to lose my kids. Last question, John, and I hope we could do this again, and I appreciate you being willing to stay uh, up late. By the way, Frank, you could buy it also, I think it's a WABC radio uh, store, and it's and it's autographed. So you get if you go to wabcradio.com and go to the, to the store, you can probably get an autographed copy. Yeah, so wabcradiostore.com, and I'll add if you use the promo code Frank fifteen, you could save fifteen percent off. So you can get an autographed copy of a great book, and you and save some money if you use Frank fifteen. And if you resell it and it's autographed, it's worth more. <laughs> <laughs> this way, it's not personalized. They, they could uh, they could sell it. They could sell it. Uh, they could sell it to whomever you want. Hey, uh, John, uh, this hour has just flown by. I have uh, a, a lot of other stuff that I could ask you about. I'd love to do a part two sometime in the future. I appreciate the time. And uh, look, you're always welcome on this program. As I've thanked you countless times, uh, publicly and privately. Thanks again for the opportunity to do the show. You've made my dream come true. Well. Frank, you do a great job, and we created this show, you know, and we always talked about it because – and the two shows that we did together uh, that I really enjoyed 
was uh, we, we were just playing around. What was it? The other side of Midnight X Files. That's something? right. Or, uh, that's or, right. The Cats Roundtable X Files uh, edition, and uh, and a, and a few others like that. John Katsimatidis, check out the book. How far do you want to go? Go to wabcradiostore.com or find it on Amazon. Listen to John on the radio tonight at five p.m. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. John Katzmatidis a moment ago, when we were talking about the creation of this show, really, we were talking about it as a platform to showcase really whacked out conspiracy theories, really interesting subjects having to do with aliens, having to do with uh, cryptozoology, uh, all sorts of things that are outside of the mainstream. And we've done that, I think, more than any other show, including the nationally syndicated show that we're beating handily in uh, the markets where we go head-to-head with them. One of the things that I think you know I like to do is just goof around. I love to spend 20, 30 minutes asking people what type of pen they use and what type of apple they like to eat. However, what I want to do this hour is something uh, very serious, and I want to get your help in doing it. Today marks the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq. And I've been thinking about this day for a long time. And if you've heard the people that I've been talking to on this show, I've been alluding to this. Uh, Ralph Nader, Dennis Kucinich, Colonel Douglas McGregor, Colonel Daniel Davis, many others talking about the war in Iraq. And I thought about, okay, maybe what we'll do is I'll get a really great guest. I made a list of 25 people that we could have on. Then that list became 35. Then it became 50 people. And then I said, okay, I'm not going to be able to get all 50 of these people on in one show, even if I do one per hour. Maybe we'll have a panel of them. Maybe we'll do three or four of them all at once. And then I thought, I'd much rather have a conversation. And then I thought maybe, okay, we won't do that. Maybe I'll recreate what happened in the run-up to war by playing audio from uh, President Bush and Colin Powell and uh, all the uh, Donald Rumsfeld and all the folks that were responsible in part for selling this war to the American people. And I said, no, I'm going to have an hour where it's just a conversation between you and me, the callers and me, where we share our honest reflections on the war in Iraq. And we try to answer a few key questions about it. Now, as far as I'm concerned, And if you disagree, and we may do little segments on this throughout the rest of the of the week, 
because I had a lot of good ideas for different segments on this with newsmakers, with star analysts and others. We may do those uh, at some point the the rest of the week. But um, I want to give you an opportunity to comment on the war in Iraq in general and certain specific facets of it, which we'll drill down upon in a moment at 800-848-9222. As far as I'm concerned, The war in Iraq is one of the greatest foreign policy blunders in American history. And in a 200-plus year history, there are many foreign policy blunders. I think this stands out as among the greatest. And we'll get into why in just a moment. Um, Looking at the situation objectively, though, you got to look at the positives and you got to look at the negatives. As far as I'm concerned, the negatives far outweigh the positives. But if you look at Iraq today, 20 years after this American invasion began, you see a country that is much freer than it was 20 years ago. People are free to vote. There's relative freedom of the press. There's relative freedom of religion. It is a much freer place. There is no doubt about that. Additionally, Saddam Hussein, who was a brutal autocrat, who had no problem murdering his political adversaries, clamping down on uh, religious minorities, clamping down on ethnic minorities, he's gone. And that's a good thing. That being said, if you look at what this country has become, if you look at all the negatives that have resulted from the American invasion of Iraq, to me, this is something that is, in my view, totally indefensible on the part of the people that led us to war. Additionally, it's something that I think is worth studying in history books for a century. And given the fact that so many of us were alive 20 years ago and are alive now and still in a position to talk about it, this strikes me as a good starting point for writing and debating and analyzing the legacy of the war in Iraq. And again, I I like to do lighthearted things. I like to do fun things. But the 20th anniversary of what I consider to be one of the most atrocious foreign policy blunders in American history doesn't happen every day. I have to be honest, this is one of the things that first attracted me to Donald Trump as a presidential candidate, is that he had no problem saying this war was an absolute disaster, and George W. Bush, who was president at the time, he should have been impeached because of this. Now, I'm not saying saying that, but that was what Trump said, and I thought it was very bold for someone who was looking to run for president as a Republican to actually go so far as to say that when um, there are a lot of Republicans that still defend Bush's march to war. So let's look at the negatives. Part of the consequence, which was visible to many at the time, of establishing a democracy in Iraq is that they would vote along religious, sectarian, and ethnic lines. And to to a large extent, they did. And when the Iraqi people got an opportunity to elect a government, what did they do? They elected a Shiite Muslim majority government and a Shiite Muslim majority and a, a Shiite Muslim leader. Now, why is that so significant? It's significant because... Prior to our invasion of Iraq, 
the largest counterweight to Iran in the Middle East was Iraq. In fact, we worked with Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war. You've seen those pictures of people like uh, Donald Rumsfeld meeting with Saddam Hussein. That's what that's from, the Iran-Iraq war, because we had an interest in keeping Iran at bay. When the people of Iraq got to vote, they decided to vote for a government that was almost exactly like Iran. Not quite a total theocracy, but in terms of uh, foreign policy priorities, domestic policy priorities, they were Iran's best buddy. We went from having a country that was a genuine counterweight to Iran in the Middle East to having a country which is in many respects just a satellite of Iran. Additionally, do you think ISIS would have been able to form under Saddam Hussein's Iraq? Part of the power vacuum that was created and the lack of any government that's worth talking about at all, it led to a a haven for terrorists and a haven for terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and Iraq, excuse me, Al-Qaeda and ISIS to flourish. And I think a lot of the mayhem that ISIS has been responsible for over the course of the last decade, I don't think that you would have seen that had the United States invaded Iraq. You have a country that is not doing well financially. In spite of the fact that this should be, this is one of the most oil-rich and resource-rich countries on the face of the world, on the face of the earth. Despite of that, the country's energy revenues have been spent primarily on the vast public sector, lost to corruption or wasted on projects that have gone unfinished. The economy of Iraq is a disaster, even though they have abundant natural resources. Um, it is corrupt. The government is totally dysfunctional, it is instable, and it is insecure. And that's putting it mildly. There have been, this is the most conservative estimate that I could find. And a lot of other estimates are far higher than this. There have been, at minimum, 4,600 American lives lost in Iraq. For what? For what? 4,600 American servicemen and women killed. For what? That's to say nothing of the 300,000 Iraqis that have been killed. And that's the most conservative estimate that I could find. Most people believe that number is much higher. And the overwhelming majority of that number is Iraqi civilians. It's a country where terrorists have been able to flourish, where guerrilla warfare is able to flourish, where civil war was able to take place because of our intervention. It has cost the United States at minimum $815 billion. Most people estimate that estimate that when you include indirect costs as well, that cost is much much higher and could be as much as three to four trillion dollars. Think about that. 
So a country that is insecure, instable, a haven for terrorists, it is free, and it does have no Saddam Hussein, 4,600 American lives, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives, many of them civilians, a trillion dollars, let's call it, in American treasure spent for what? Oh, and that's to say nothing of the fact that America's image abroad was, I believe, irreparably damaged. Irreparably damaged. And our place as some sort of moral conscience of the industrialized world was completely eradicated. How can we tell anyone what to do? Any country after what happened on our watch in Iraq. So I have a few questions for you that I'd like you to answer at 800-848-9222. The first question is this. Is Iraq better off today than it was 20 years ago? Yes, no, maybe, why? Two, is the United States better off because of our intervention in Iraq? But here's the most important question that I want you to weigh in on at 800-848-9222. Two decades later, this is the most important question. Why did the United States invade Iraq? Now, on the face of it, it sounds simple, but it's not. Because so many of the different people that were pushing for this invasion, the think tanks, the people in the Bush administration, the people in the Pentagon, the people in the media, they had different agendas in pushing this. But just as more than 100 years later, we still debate what caused World War I, I think that question, why did the United States invade Iraq, is such a fundamentally important question. And before we could talk about any lessons learned from the war in Iraq, I think we need to answer that question or at least begin to explore it. So why did it? Was it to liberate the Iraqis from Saddam Hussein's rule and bring democracy to the Middle East, as the Bush administration later claimed? Was it oil? Was it faulty intelligence? Was it geopolitical gain? Was it simply overconfidence? Was it popular desire for, in the aftermath of September 11th, for a war, any war, to reclaim national pride? Or, as in conflicts like World War I, was it mutual miscommunication that sent distrustful states bumbling into a conflict? In the New York Times Sunday, uh, Elizabeth Saunders is a Georgetown University scholar. And, and this quote really stuck with me. She said this, if you want to prevent this from happening again, which I do, if you want to prevent this from happening again, you need to get the diagnosis right. So let's get the diagnosis right. Why do you think the United States invaded Iraq? So one question that's gotten a lot of attention over the last 20 years, far more than the questions that I just posed, is did the administration sincerely believe its rationale for war, meaning weapons of mass destruction, 
Or did they engineer this as a pretense for going into Iraq? And the answer is I have no idea. I have no idea if they believe this or they use this as an excuse. Uh, A lot of the insider accounts consistently portray the administration as downplaying or rejecting piles of intelligence contradicting its claims. Instead, they would cherry-pick circumstantial evidence. That began in the hours after the September 11th attacks. Paul Wolfowitz, Deputy Defense Secretary, pressed his subordinates for proof of his suspicion that Saddam Hussein had been involved. He was not. Four days later, at a Camp David meeting, Paul Wolfowitz and others argued that Saddam Hussein was probably responsible, urging Bush to consider military action. Bush told his national security team, I believe Iraq was involved. Now, they, they were not. They were not. Um, two days later, he told his national security team that he didn't yet have the evidence to act. That's according to Bob Woodward's book. Soon after... Officials began making this case publicly. And yet when the evidence for a link to September 11th wasn't there, the administration didn't slow down its drive to war. They just changed their rationale. Officials claimed that Saddam Hussein possessed or would soon possess nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons that he might intend to use against the United States. Those claims were carried and amplified by all of America's major media outlets. Everyone. You remember what was going on in the media at the time? You had Jesse Ventura lost his job on MSNBC for opposing the war. You had Phil Donahue lost his job on MSNBC for opposing the war. Richard Bay lost his job on WABC for opposing the war. And turns out those guys were right. And let's look at what happened to the pundits. Where are all the pundits that lied us into this mess, or if they weren't lie, uh, lying, I don't want to be, I don't want to be unfair. I, I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to people. But all the pundits that went on television day in and day out, urging us to get involved in this war, people like Bill Crystal. Where are they? Oh, that's right. Every single one of them who's alive is still on TV, and they're making the same case for getting America involved in other wars. Um, where are the architects of the war? The people that led us into this war, Bush, Cheney, Wolfowitz, well, every single one of them, at least the ones that are alive, every single one of them have gotten very, very rich. There's not a single one of them that's paid any financial price for their misjudgment in this run-up to war. Not a single one. What does that say about society? That you could be wrong about something so consequential and still go on TV pontificating as if you know something and still write books, have a newspaper column. And these are not just conservatives. In fact, if you look at the conservatives, if you look at the people that most articulately made the case against going to war, it was conservatives. It was people like Pat Buchanan. It was people like Ron Paul. It was people like Bob Novak. That's those are the most the the so-called leading liberals of the time, for the most part, 
They all fell in line. Not all of them. People like Dennis Kucinich did not. But they all voted to go right along with George Bush in this. People like Hillary Clinton. People like Joe Biden. They all ran to make sure that the United States was part of this. They'll never wear that label. They'll never say that now. But that was absolutely the case. So why did the war start? Why did the United States invade? Is Iraq better off today? Is the United States better? And is it finally time to repeal the authorization of the use of military force? Um, We have four open lines, and uh, I've said a lot. So I'm going to allow the rest of this hour to be dominated by you on the questions that I just posed. Not going to say much beyond maybe challenging you if you bring up something. But you want to disagree, you want to agree, or you want to just bring up something new, whatever you want to do. 800-848-9222. The rest of this hour is yours as we look back on the 20th anniversary of the United States invading Iraq. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. At Giant Eagle, you may have spotted the Stacker. With uncanny MyPerks ability, she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20% off her entire grocery bill. The Stacker, stacking up huge savings with MyPerks. Find your MyPersonality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries. Full details at GiantEagle.com slash MyPerks. Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, 20 years ago, the United States began the war in Iraq, and we now know officials often misrepresented what they had, ha- what they had in terms of evidence. But meeting notes and other accounts do not show them as plotting to sell a weapons threat that they knew was fictitious, nor as having been misled by faulty intelligence. Rather, the record suggests something much more simple. A critical mass of senior officials all came to the table wanting to topple Saddam Hussein for their own reasons and then talked one another into believing the most readily available justification. Um, The truth, Paul Wolfowitz told Vanity Fair in 2003, is that for reasons that have a lot to do with the U.S. government bureaucracy, we settled on the one issue that everyone could agree on, which was weapons of mass destruction as the core reason. He said that 20 years ago. He said that 20 years ago. So each individual had their reasons and their biases, and the absence of experience at the presidential level enabled those biases. Because if you look – well, okay, I said I wouldn't talk – anymore and I'm about to start start pontificating again. I'm going to go to folks in the order that they've been holding. Let me begin with David in the Bronx. Hello David. Yes, good morning Frank. 
Um, I basically agree with your assessment of the Iraq war. And I'll say this. I think the one lesson or one of the most important lessons we need to learn from this experience is that we have to be very wary of super patriotism. Because the reason a lot of Democrats and other people went along with this is that they were afraid of being called anti-American or anti-patriotic for not supporting the war. And, you know, the, the people that were pro-war, they had their, their plants in the media. They had people at the New York Times and at the major networks that were pushing this narrative about weapons of mass destruction. And those of us who didn't agree with it were scared to talk about how this was wrong because I was called anti-American for opposing the war. And I know that people like Hillary Clinton and Al Gore and all these other ones went along with it. I give credit to Bernie Sanders, who I can't stand, as you probably know, for at least being against it from the beginning and not being one of these Johnny-come-latelys Johnny who opposed it after it went bad. Okay, So, you know, yeah, the Iraqis might be better off. The country that we live in definitely is not better off. And I do worry that people are still susceptible to falling into this trap where we get all worked up over some incident, and then we all follow the, the herd like a bunch of uh, lemmings over a cliff, which is what happened back in 2003. Thank you, David. Larry in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, um, Frank, I, I believe I don't. Uh, I, I reject all this. Uh, you know, hindsight. Uh, you know, fifty. Hindsight is is fifty fifty. They say it's so it's whatever it is. Twenty twenty. Yeah. The point is, the reason we uh, invaded Iraq is because we were involved with Iraq from the Gulf War. And I think if you want to analyze it, it's because because father and son succeeded each other in, in presidencies. That's what that's re, that's the reason. But the more fundamental but, reason is. But let is, me ask you, Larry, and I'm going to let you make yes. your point on a bridge. Yes. George yes. Bush, after the very successful American campaign in Kuwait in Operation Desert Storm, there were some people that wanted him to go further. And after Kuwait was liberated, they wanted him to go into Iraq, and uh, and they wanted him to take out Saddam Hussein back then. Now his advisors, people like. Uh, James Baker, Brent Socroft, they urged him not to, and, and Bush listened to them. And then uh, Brent Socroft, he actually wrote an open letter to George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, at the t uh, ten years or twelve years later, saying, "Don't do this, don't do this." And um, people asked George W. Bush, "Well, have you consulted with your father about this?" And Bush said, "The people that he had, uh, the only people that he had talked to were Dick Cheney and God." About this and that he didn't uh, ask his father for his opinion about this. So I'm not sure how much that father and son dynamic played a role here because George H.W. Bush was smart enough not to go into Iraq. Well, he may not have consulted with his father, but he consulted with his people. But my larger point is this. I think the reason we got involved with Iraq to begin with under George Bush the first is out of fear of Iran. In other words, we had to engage one of the two. We, was, we were secretly supporting Iraq in the Iraq-Iran war. We were afraid to attack a theocracy because we thought all hell would break loose. We'd never see the end of that war. They attacked our Marines under Reagan. They killed about 300 of them. We never retaliated. I was reading at the time that there was a fundamental fear, a reason we were not attacking Iran. And I think to save face, 
when when uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait, there was no reason. We could have let Kuwait go. We didn't have a treaty with Kuwait. I think we were trying to deter Iran and show and show Iran uh, how strong we were. So that's why we went out. You know, we went outside of our parameters and got involved with Iraq. And once we did that, Saddam became extremely defiant. He became a bad boy. He had that plane on the tarmac. And I think we thought that Al Qaeda was trading on that plane. I think they may have been training on that plane. Okay, and we thought we had ever we had we, that misled us to believe that Saddam was behind 9/11, and I think that was a very big part in in, in why we invaded. What do you think uh, the greatest lesson that we've learned 20 years later is? I understand hindsight's 2020, but let's use it to better prepare ourselves for the future. What's the greatest lesson of the Iraq War? The greatest lesson of the Iraq War is take on the right enemy. Be be geopolitically honest. If Iran is the enemy, don't go after another bad actor in the, in, in the region. We, we have to choose our enemies carefully. And if we can't go after the, the, uh, the, the real bad guy, then just abstain as we're doing right now in the Russia-Ukraine war. Thanks, Larry. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Forest Hills. Hello, Ed. Yes, Frank. I agree with you 100%. I said this from the beginning when Bush was in power that he made a big mistake going into Iraq. And I knew what was going to happen. The aftermath is self-evident. Look at what's happened to the political uh, landscape. This is why Trump was elected, because he was against that war, and he's still against the war. He's also calling him out now on Ukraine. And we have to do. We have to be smarter this time around because what happened in Iraq is a shame. It's it's killed our economy. It's it's done terrible things to this country, and we should be smarter than this by now. Thanks, Ed. 800-848-9222. Williams in Asbury Park. Hello. Hello. Um, what you have to consider about the wars is consider the fact that – consider your leaders want you under their thumb. They want you in chains. Now, how do you get a population in change? Well, you need a threat. You need to put the population in fear. So you need a bad man. You need – uh, Saddam Hussein, bad man. Osama bin Laden, bad man. Bashir Assad, bad man. That way you can put your country hopelessly in debt, fighting a needless war. And that way you can give power to three-letter government agencies outside of congressional law, constitutional law. That way you set up the domestic police state, get the population acclimated to being searched and seized just to travel. TSA, Homeland Security, Patriot Act. So you, you sell them the bad man. Well, the CIA created a bad man, but you see Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, and the rest of the meat puppets, they, they, they don't want to talk about that. So give up your constitutional rights and, you know, turn your guns in and, uh, and get a license to buy and sell or the bad man might get you. The coronavirus might get you that they created in a lab. See what I'm saying? You see how this works? Thanks, William. 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. Uh, hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to point out uh, the false premise that was used to create a minor justification for the Iraq war and the major justification for the screwed-up occupation. So uh, I believe uh, Donald Rumsfeld and some of the right-wingers 
promoted the idea that, uh, well, everyone's basically the same, just like us Americans or us Europeans. So if we remove Saddam Hussein, those people in Iraq would create a Western-style democracy, and that didn't happen. And so the false premise is basically that somehow we're all the same deep down, and I don't think that's true. Differences in culture and genetics produces people with different behaviors. And uh, and that occupation went completely awry because we went in with too few troops, thinking that these people are just like us. They're not. 800-848-9222. Chris is on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, Frank? What's hey. going on? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head when you said about, you know, people got, you know, some these people got rich off of uh, going into war. And uh, it's the truth. You know, uh, they take out tax dollars that we pay for it. They send it all over to other countries, you know, and they get filthy rich on it while we suffer by paying high prices, whether it be for gas or just everyday, you know, goods or food and everything like that. And uh, also, you know, even if you look at it now with the Ukraine war. You know, it took them a couple hours to decide, let's send, you know, $40 billion, you know, the first time, send it right to Ukraine. I mean, it's all about money. It, it comes down to about money, 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 and we're the taxpayer that funds all of this. And we just allow them to spew their, I guess, propaganda or whatever it is. Because you know, at least when you spoke and you said, let's at least question this, why did this happen? You put on these news media outlets, they don't question. They're not saying, let's question it. They're telling you. They're programming you to say, hey, look, this this is what's going on. This is it. And even if it comes out that it's not the truth, they pretend like they never said it. Yeah, you know, uh, that's a- such a good point. There's never any ownership of and it's not just this and it's not just the Ukraine situation. But you look at issue after issue of big stories that the media gets wrong. And um, th- th- you're right. There's never any justification. There's never any apology. There's never any at least acknowledgement to the public. You know, w- we got this wrong. We botched this. And uh, here's why we botched it. And here's the protocols that we're going to implement to make sure we don't botch it in the future. That's such a good point, Chris. Thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Rockland. Hello, Tom. Hi, good morning, Frank. Great show. Thanks. Hey, uh, you know, Thomas Friedman, the media in general, just came down like a tidal wave for the war. And Tom Friedman, even Tom Friedman of the liberal New York Times, promoted the war, although he did. He did. did apologize. Years later, I, I don't think he's, uh, he's well, one of those that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think at one, I think a lot of people felt that it was going to be a cakewalk, both the people in the administration and the media, and that's one of the reasons I think it was so popular at the time uh, twenty years ago. But then, subsequent to that, when it was clear that the American public was no longer on board with this, then you had people rushing to uh, to run away from their former positions. Friedman was one. John F. Kerry is another. Hillary Clinton is another. Numerous others. Thank you, Tom. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Yes, greetings, Frank. Uh, so I thought it was rather shameful when they sent Colin Powell to the United Nations with less evidence than what we even had some 30 years before when we were showing Cuban missiles, uh, uh, Soviet missiles in Cuba, with satellite pictures. They sent Colin Powell to the UN to make that argument with, with what I'd basically call PowerPoint uh, slides or pictures that were made on a computer. And there really was very little evidence in that regard. But uh, Frank, are you referring to 
with regards to the conservative think tanks about the uh, re-envisioning of the Middle East as a democracy, as a uh, where democracy kind of takes the place of these uh, leaders and they would create more stability. Is is that what you were referring to? Well, earlier? I mean, among other things, I, I think a lot of them had uh, different reasons. But, yeah, if you look at, um, you know, uh, with the exception of the Cato Institute, almost every right leaning think tank supported the war in Iraq, um, the, you know, think tanks like the uh, Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, but even a lot of the even a lot of the center left thinks tanks, um, you know, did as well. Brookings in the Brookings Institute, they proved instrumental. Uh, Kenneth Pollack from the Brookings Institute wrote The Threatening Storm, the case for invading Iraq. That played a key role in getting center left opinion leaders behind the war um, in The New Yorker. David Remnick wrote that a, a Return to a hollow pursuit of containment will be the most dangerous of of it all. Um, and there was think tank after think tank that was uh, all. They were all embracing the the run up to war. Thank you, Igor. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about not so much the leaders or what the causes were, what the roots were. Let's let's remember the uh, you know thousand or so families right now across New York who've lost someone because of that war. Uh, if you look at the statistics of the casualties, uh, a lot of them are from the 10th Mountain Division. And anyone who knows the history of the 10th Mountain Division, that's New York's own. You know, that's, that's, that's our division. Um, there are thousands of homes across America tonight that have an empty space, that have uh, an empty plate, that still, you know, remember those who were lost. And all they did was serve. They answered the call. Yep. So, you know, let's let's the politics. Yeah, we got to talk about it. We got to it's been 20 years this time that some of these people were brought to account for whatever lies they told and everything else. But let us not forget the sacrifice. Let us not forget the men and women who served. Let's not forget those who, when called upon, did the job. Thank, thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Good morning, Frank. Morning. No, no, why does nobody remember for months? Saddam Hussein would not let the inspectors in, the UN inspectors in, to check for chemical, for weapons of mass destruction. And then every time they came, he would deny them. Then all of a sudden, finally, after months go by, he started letting them in, and they found nothing. Nobody, nobody remembers this. That whole time, he wasn't letting inspectors in. Whatever he had, he was getting rid of. So you believe he had weapons of mass destruction, and then he moved them somewhere else? Exactly. No, Weapons of mass destruction doesn't mean just nuclear bombs that are huge. He had mustard gas weapons. Remember, he gassed a bunch of his own people. Right. He had other types. You know, there's other types of mass, uh, weapons of mass destruction that aren't nukes that were easy to get rid of. And for months on the TV, I kept saying to myself, of course he doesn't have any because he's getting rid of them. That's why he's not letting you inspectors in. So where do you think these weapons of mass destruction went? I have no idea. I mean, he could have done anything over there. Remember, he was he was the leader of the whole country. He could have done anything he wanted. He could have put them into the adjacent country, for all we know. Mm. Okay. All right. Thank you, yeah. Paul. 800-848-9222. Uh, Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Hey, okay. Uh, I have several things, Frank, so take me a minute. Uh, first off, uh, you should have just went after Hussein if you wanted to do that directly. Uh, in the meantime, they uh, killed 
at the outset, 100,000 Iraqi soldiers in the desert, a ragtag army. Uh, but they're not people, you know, according to our press. Uh, one article I remember at the time in the Wall Street Journal, uh, a woman was uh, buying fruit in uh, Iraq. You know, uh, I think she was like a grandmother, somebody in her 50s or whatever, and uh, a transformer landed on her, you know, uh, from Roshakin or in Baghdad. Uh, another thing I remember is uh, uh, George uh, W. Bush uh, saying how uh, courageous uh, and valorous uh, this guy that was the uh, top student in Stanford, he was 26, went and served and got killed. Uh, I, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's a waste of talent. And I remember uh, at the time this girl with, you know, picture-perfect, beautiful face got severely burned on her face, one of our soldiers. Uh, thanks to George Bush and, and, and those ugly people, uh, as an example, uh, you know. So when they say great American Satan, I kind of see their point when they gathered and, and, and you know, uh, was calling out the U.S. as, as uh, Satanists. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. I really want to give you an opportunity to be heard and uh, allow you to express your opinion 20 years later, your answers to any of my questions. Why did the United States invade Iraq? Is the United States better off for it? Are the Iraqi people better off for it? Is the Middle East better off for it? Is anybody better off for it except for the people that made a lot of money? 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Minds that plot destruction, sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning, as the war machine keeps turning. This is Black Sabbath, War Pigs, an excellent selection by Alex Barnard. If you ever want to know what uh, what music we're playing on the radio, you can join our Facebook group. Uh, go to Morano Fans and Haters on Facebook. Just search that, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. We post the song selections after the show. And that group is also meant to be a place where you guys can interact with one another politely and respectfully, please, about what you like about the show, what you don't like about it, uh, question uh, the things that we may have brought up on the show, or just connect with other listeners about the program. All right. Um, talking about the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq, I want to take the next 10 minutes and give them to you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Tony's in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Um, I think the reason that the politicians were so eager to get into this war is because they had the left fingers in a lot of pies, as they are with every single war that we've ever been in. Look at World War II, where um, 
they taunted the Japanese by putting all of our ships in Hawaii, making them think that we were going to attack. To them, it was just a preemptive strike. To us, it was the end of the world and made everybody so mad that even though at the time the public did not want to be involved in that war, he got his, his way and we did enter that war. So they were making a lot of money off of it. And people like Hillary Clinton then, of course, denied it. Oh, no, no, no. I was against it because they was lying. And I think that's why we got in the war was because of all the money there was to be made. Thank you, Tony. 800-848-9222. And uh, Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hey, Frank. Robert, uh, turn your radio off. We'll come back to you. Joe in Florida. Hello. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Uh, is, is, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Saddam Hussein have a contract out for George W.? No, that was the, the father, George H.W. Bush. Right, yeah. He had, he, he had a contract out on him, didn't he? Yes. I, I, I thought that was the only reason at the time we even bothered going after Iraq, just for that, just for that reason alone. You mean you think it was retribution? Exactly. I see. Okay. All right. Well, hey, uh, I mean— Remember, because these guys were Saudis. They weren't Iraqis. Meaning the 9-11 hijackers? Yeah. Yeah. uh, I know. Uh, Believe me. And yet George Bush had no problem going to Saudi Arabia and on bended knee kissing the members of the Saudi royal family. 800-848-9222. Kathy's in Westchester. Hello, Kathy. Hey, Frank, listen, on that note, there was ample evidence. And right now I'm driving back from Vermont, back to beautiful Franklin Lakes area, Mawa, where I reside. And they knew that the Saudis were behind it. And then another off the topic, but not lie that was poor. It was poorly executed. I'm not blaming Christine Whitman, but it just showed the whole travesty of sloppiness that she was announcing that the whole area was safe, clean, and clear. And that's just another example of poor, poor leadership. You understand? I do. And it's so sad. It is, and who's still making money? And I'm not against people making money, although I've had my issues, but Kushner with the Saudis. The Saudis are untouchable. It's a disgrace. And we're getting harmed by it. Thanks, Kathy. 800-848-9222. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Good morning, Frank. It was blood for oil. George Bush, George Tenet should be put on trial for war crimes today. Drag them out of their Texas ranch or whatever it is. Get the international. Get some Russians over there to arrest them for war crimes. Thank you, Ron. Uh, Kevin in Connecticut, hello. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Hey, my take on this whole thing is that we went into this because of the war machine that this country is. And the fact that we were going to go into a big recession and Bush fabricated that war and we went in there, we spent money. But what we really did is we destabilized that whole area. This country, and and then this is what really leads up to today with that war. 
is that when that Patriot Act came out, everybody said, you can't say a word against the government. And people were arrested. And today you just see the machine of the media following lockstep in with the government. Whatever the government wants, the lockstep media follows it. And it doesn't matter what the story is. And today we have Trump, Trump, Trump. What do you think of that? Uh, Well, uh, Kevin, I agree with uh, much of what you just said there. Russell is in Rockaway. Hello, Russell. Hi, Frank. Um, The issue of weapons of mass destruction, they knew that they were there because we gave them to Iraq for the Iraq-Iran war. And when Saddam turned on the Saudis and threatened the oil money that the Bushes were so deeply involved with, of course, if your attack dog turns on you, you got to put them down. But in doing so, we broke the country. And if you break it, Mm. you own it. If you own it, you make money off it. Pretty simple. Well, thank you, Russell. We're not making money, right? And more importantly, neither are the Iraqis. Uh, they're, all their money's going to their the corrupt government. These projects that are unfinished, they still they a lot of households still don't even have regular electricity for one of the most oil rich and resource rich countries in the on the face of the earth. Rich is in New Jersey. Hello, Rich. Uh, great show tonight. Thanks. Uh, this is relevant. It goes to character about Bush. Why was Dan Rather uh, forced out of CBS after uh, reporting? I thought truthfully that Bush cut out of his obligation after completing flight training. Well, uh, thank you, Rich. Um, and look, I, I like Dan Rather, but I mean, I don't think he should have been fired necessarily. But he's acknowledged that the sourcing on that story was improper. Now, he says that the source was not true. The source was false, but the story was true. Maybe it's not, but you can't go um, on television, especially a newsman of Dan Anker's uh, credibility and longevity and with a faulty source like that, uh, with that, you, we got to double check that something like that. Right. But, you know, um, I get what you're saying. Isabel is in Manhattan. Hello, Isabel. Hi, Frank. Uh, this was a clear example of what General Thrush, President Eisenhower, warned about getting into a war so that some people can make a lot of money. The military-industrial complex. Excellent point. Abe is in Manhattan. Hello, Abe. The military-industrial complex. I'm very impressed. Uh, a number of the rich, uh, issues. I've never called. I have listened at times. Sometimes you keep me company. So I do uh, agree with you on some things, and I don't agree with you on a lot of others. But I want to read this. Um, something fundamental about the country and what the country really is. Now, this is from a book, Dark Ages America, written by Morris Berman, who's currently living in Mexico, the greatest American cultural historian. You wrote a trilogy on America. Everyone should know about it. Take a look. Uh, Twilight of American Culture, written in, in 1999. This one, Dark Ages America, written in 2006. And why America fails. So I'm going to read a couple sentences. Morris Berman. Frank, take a look at him. The American invasion of Iraq, I quote, in the spring of 2000, your, your analysis 
is very right on in many, many ways, but it doesn't go to the fundamental illness of the culture itself, what the country really is. The American invasion of Iraq in the spring of 2003 was about a lot of things, but it wasn't about Iraq, nor was it intended to be. Although the Bush Jr. administration obviously could not say so publicly as rebuilding America's defenses. Do you know about the project for a new American century, Frank? I do. Abe, we only have about 20 seconds left, so I have to ask you to wrap this up. 20 seconds is all I want. Um, So, look, they wanted that war. They lied clearly because of it. And the intention was not only money and the oil fields, that was one of the excuses and one of the reasons, it was American hegemony. They believed that they could take over Iraq and spread American hegemony everywhere. Thank you, Abe. Um, For everybody else, I'm sorry we didn't get to you. And for people that have been listening and that haven't called, we're going to get to some lighter topics as well. Believe me. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, I promised you more cheerful matters, did I not? Well, is there anything more cheerful than recognizing the merits, the hard work, the contributions, the accomplishments of people that have done something worthy of being commended? And that's what we do every week at this time on the program as we give out... The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I must commend Aria Lehman, or Laman. A nine-year-old girl in Illinois is being heralded as a hero for her quick thinking and calm demeanor that potentially saved her mother's life. She was doing homework in the dining room on February 2nd when her mother, Karen Lehman, collapsed. So out of nowhere, the mother just passed out. She's on the floor. She couldn't move. She couldn't feel her entire left side. She couldn't speak at all. The words were not coming out. Now, this woman has a history of spinal cord issues. Aria quickly dialed her father, who was a medic in the Air Force for 20 years, and then she calmly dialed 911 and waited with her mother until emergency services arrived. When the ambulance arrived... Aria was also able to put the dog away, lock her home, and tell emergency services about her mother's allergies. This is incredibly impressive. For a nine-year-old girl to have this degree of grace under fire in this circumstance, I think that's really commendable. 
Ariel Lehman, I think uh, I, I not only do I commend you, but I think you're a model for what every child should know in what to do in the case of an emergency. I must commend Greg Spike, an Oregon grandfather who rescued a woman from a burning hotel. One Tuesday morning, 74-year-old Greg Spike jogged a shorter path than he typically would. Turns out the grandfather of 16 was in the right place at the right time to become a hero. He saw smoke on his running trail along the uh, Willamette River in Eugene, Oregon. Smoke from a fire at a hotel where Illinois native Stacy Barkley was staying while visiting the family. The three-alarm fire at the Valley River Inn ignited on the second floor late that morning before spreading to the third floor. So Spike filmed the blaze on his phone as he jogged when he heard a woman cry for help. It was Stacy Barkley. He jumped into action. He didn't even hesitate. He ran right over and rescued this woman from the burning hotel. Saved her life. And uh, speaking of hero passers-by, there is one um, passerby in China whose name we don't have, but is equally heroic. He's being hailed as a hero for climbing the side of a building as easily as if he himself were the were Spider-Man to rescue a toddler that had fallen out of a building window onto a ledge. In the city of Zhangzhou, a casually dressed middle-aged man was videotaped scaling a pipe to reach the second-floor ledge of a building where a child was crying, having previously fallen out of a window another floor above. Once there, he edges along the ledge to reach the platform and secure the child, whereby a man from the window above lowers a rope to hoist the child back up to what's presumably his home. The hero, smiling, returned using the same pipe after brushing his hands. According to the South China Morning Post, the identity of the good spider Samaritan is still unknown, and the child only suffered a few scratches. I want to commend Sidney Holmes, a man, a Florida man, who served more than three decades of a 400-year prison sentence for armed robbery charges. He was freed on Monday after being exonerated. Imagine that. 30 years of your life in prison for a crime you did not commit. This guy is 57 years old, and he's been in prison for 30 years of his life. He was convicted in 1989 for a 1988 robbery where he was accused of being the getaway driver. He was greeted warmly by his family as he walked free on Monday and said the first thing he wanted to do was get something to eat. He'd been convicted uh, of acting as the getaway driver for two men who robbed two people at gunpoint and stole one of the victim's cars in Fort Lauderdale. And the two robbers remain unidentified. Holmes contacted the state attorney's conviction review unit in 2020 and told investigators he was innocent. The CRU then determined that Holmes had a plausible claim of innocence. So during CRU's review of Holmes's case, it determined eyewitness identification of Holmes during the initial investigation was likely incorrect and that there was no other evidence at all connecting Holmes to the robbery outside of this flawed identification. 
An investigation launched by the brother of one of the victims also found that Holmes's car was likely misidentified at the car at the time and that key differences between his Oldsmobile and the one used by the robbers were overlooked. So based on the review, five of six independent panelists voted that Holmes was innocent and his conviction should be thrown out immediately. The victims in the case both said they thought Holmes should be released. Deputies involved in the original investigation were also shocked that Holmes served 34 years in prison and had been sentenced to 400 years. This is just horrific. How many other people are in prison right now that are innocent? The fundamental problem with our criminal justice system today is that there are too many people in prison that don't belong there, and there are too many people out on the street that belong in prison. I truly believe that. I want to commend Yi Hang Wong, a young boy, nine-year-old boy. Hey, it's a big week for nine-year-olds and uh, Asian people. They're doing a lot of commendable things, those nine-year-olds and those Asian people. Nine-year-old Yi Hang Wong just set the world record for the f- fastest average time to solve a Rubik's Cube. This kid can solve a Rubik's Cube in 4.69 seconds. That is absolutely extraordinary. I must also commend Monda Fermentation Company Limited. This is a company that has set the world record. It's a Japanese company. So again, still a big week for the Asian folks. A Japanese company that has set the world record for growing the world's heaviest radish. They grew a massive radish that weighs a whopping uh, 45.8 kilograms at the time of the world record. It has a circumference of 113 centimeters. I hate to see, see the record that this broke was a New York farmer, and I hate to see a New Yorker lose the record, but maybe this will inspire New Yorkers to, I don't know, try and try their hand at one-upping the Japanese on this one. I want to commend the French Bulldog. The French Bulldog is now the most popular dog breed in America. Yes, that's right. For the first time, for the first time in 31 years, the United States has a new favorite dog breed, and it is the French Bulldog. The American Kennel Club released its 2022 registration statistics and found that after being the most popular dog breed for three decades, the Labrador Retriever was outranked by the French Bulldog. So congratulations to you, French Bulldog. I want to commend dad jokes. I tell a fair number of dad jokes myself. And they're not just endlessly entertaining, but a recent study says that despite the embarrassment that dad jokes can cause, it might do some kids good in the future. Humor researcher Mark High Knudsen published a study in British Psychological Society's journal this week arguing that dad jokes actually have a positive effect on development. When considered properly, dad jokes are an intricately multi-layered and fascinating phenomenon 
that reveals a lot, not just about how humor and joke-telling work, but also about fathers' psychology and their relationships with their children. Dad jokes are typically inoffensive, corny puns. They're wholesome, age-appropriate, making it suitable for fathers to tell their children. And this new study suggests that these corny dad jokes can benefit children by showing them how to overcome embarrassment. So those of you that are dads, like me, you tell a dad joke now and then, know that you're doing your child a real service. Penultimately, I want to commend the Boston Bruins. I know very little about hockey, but I must commend the Boston Bruins because this is remarkable. The Bruins have become the fastest team in NHL history to reach 50 wins. This is remarkable. They needed only 64 games to reach 50 wins. You know, I'm going to be in Atlantic City in a month. And uh, I'm, not, I'm sure it won't pay very good odds right now, but I have a good feeling that the Boston Bruins may win the whole Stanley Cup. I may place a bet on them to win that Stanley Cup. And speaking of sports, that leads me to my last commendation. I want to commend live sporting events. And I'll be honest, this study is actually something that is causing me, is going to cause me to change my behavior. And I'll explain why in a moment. But new study from scientists at Anglia Ruskin University say that watching live sporting events actually improve well-being and can reduce feelings of loneliness as much as getting a job. Seeing sporting events in person boost your mental health as much as getting a job. The findings come after a survey of more than 7,000 adults, which shows that sports fans who attend games in person, be it professional or amateur, scored better than those who didn't get, who didn't, in terms of life satisfaction. So I, um, I, I still really enjoy going to minor league games, so and independent league games. So I guess those games would play just as much of a role in. boosting my mental health as major league games because I'll be honest, I really don't enjoy um, going to major professional sporting events anymore, like um, major league baseball and things like that. I mean, I go to maybe two games a year, but today I'm going to get my wife to pick a day and we're going to go to some Met games. And also I'm going to buy some Cyclones tickets and some Fairyhawks tickets as well, because um, it's just such a hassle when you can watch the game on television to, to go and to park, to get there, and to deal with all the rigmarole. So often I find myself preferring to watch the game on, on television rather than go there. But this study leads me to think maybe I shouldn't make more of a priority going to live sporting events. All right. If you have a comment on any of this week's commendations, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. If you want to be heard on this or anything else we've covered, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your phone calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Is that it's a clock? Yeah, it's thick 30. 
Say 800-848-9222. By the way, speaking of uh, music, uh, today we have uh, star musician, our producer, Alex Barnard, uh, sitting in for Matt Blaze. I think uh, Matt's not sick or anything. He's just taking a vacation day. Um, I, I think it was his uh, domestic partner's birthday and or something like that. And uh, they were going to have a nice three-day weekend together. So good for them. Uh, Alex, uh, doing a great job so far. I'm hesitant to say that because that usually guarantees something will go wrong. But uh, well, it doesn't help when you don't have much faith in me, Frank. Well, when you when you say something like that, sorry about you know. That. Um, what I do have to say though is, um, you know, one of the things the audience doesn't hear this, but the one of the things that Matt does and and you've done is you'll feed music down to the affiliates during the spot break and during the top of the hour so that they know that they're still connected and they're not getting dead air and so that the people on hold know that uh, that there's you know that they're still connected and they don't just hear dead air you have assembled and I've been subjected to for the last you know couple of hours now Quite the collection of death metal music. Is this the kind of music you listen to on yeah, a regular basis? It absolutely is. I have yes. to tell you, I think they call it death metal because you want to kill yourself by listening to it. I mean, this I music is, is, I mean, it's really depressing. Not for me. I love it. It's great. Kenneth, I mean, this is a quite a change from the music Matt Blaze is playing oh, yeah. off air. As soon as he started playing those songs, I'm like, Frank's Frank's got to know that Alex is behind oh, no, no the controls here <laughs> no with, with that music. No doubt about it. Uh, I mean, that is, uh, I can tell you, I, I like to think that there's parts of all kinds of music that I can like. Uh, that is not my thing. Definitely not my thing. But more power to you. And by the way, you uh, you are a death metal artist in your own right. How do people get your uh, your hit song, Live Streamed Crimes? You can get Live Streamed Crimes as well as the rest of the album that it's a part of, which is called Amatory Mass, on iTunes and Spotify. Just search up Face Stealer. That's one word, Face Stealer. Amatory Mass. You'll be able to find... Um, Everything that you need to find. Got it. Thank you very much. All right. Rob in Suffolk has been patiently holding. You tried to get on earlier, but his uh, his radio was on. Rob, hello. Yes, Frank. Sorry about that. That's all right, Rob. Um, What's on your mind? War in Iraq. It's a reminder about our failings because after the war, the caliphate and ISIS took over a major, major part of not just Iraq, but also Syria. So now it was the war on terrorism again after the Iraq war. You know, we have to be careful and recognize who our enemies truly are. And now there are a lot of them within our country who are working against the United States to take away our morals, 
our freedom, our money. They were, have been called globalists, but they're also politicians. There are also people in the administration that we have currently. And they're also transnationals. All right. People who thank, are thank not you, of Rob. this thank country. You. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. All right. Um, I, you know, I, again, I, I, we gave people an hour uh, to talk about the Iraq situation. I really don't necessarily want to revisit it because, I mean, it is important, and that's why I spent an hour on it. But, um, you know, sometimes people want to spend some time on lighter pursuits. You know, is they trying to sleep? Is they're coming home late from work? So I want to give them an opportunity to do that as well. Thank you, uh, Rob. So I am a pen fanatic, and we did this segment on pens maybe about six or seven months ago, and it's a funny thing. I wrote down the pens. I asked people what their favorite pen was, and a bunch of people called, maybe 20, 30 people called. I wrote down every single one of the pens, and I bought most of them. Additionally, uh, a bunch of people that didn't call in emailed me pen suggestions, and I bought a bunch of those. And... Lo and behold, it, it, it had me looking at pens in a whole new world, in a whole new way. So every time I would go to the drugstore, every time I would go to uh, really any kind of store, the supermarket, I would look at the pens and think to myself, do I have one of those? Do I have one of those? So I have now purchased probably more pens than I could use in, I don't want to say a lifetime, but at least the next 20 years. And um, I have a lot of different types of pens, but there's one pen that I keep in the notebook that I currently use, and so I use it a lot when I'm reading the paper. And I like it. It's um, a Uniball Vision Elite, and I guess this is a gel pen, but I don't think Uniball uh, calls it a gel pen. I think they call it a... Um, I, I, it, they call it... Uh, let, me see what, let me see what they call it. It's um, the descript. They call it a rollerball pen. That's what they call it, a rollerball pen. But it writes a little like a gel pen. I love this pen. Fifteen dollars. It's a great pen. I use it every day. I bring it with me to the radio station, and when I'm reading the papers at home, I, I keep my notebook open in front of me, and I make notes both on the newspaper itself, and I make notes in my notebook about what topics I want to talk about, what audio I might want to play on the topic, uh, who might deserve a commendation, who might deserve a denunciation, what might, who might be an interesting guest. But it's just such a wonderful pen. It writes so smoothly, unlike other gel pens, and again, I realize it's not a gel pen, it's technically a rollerball pen. It doesn't smudge. It doesn't smear. It's a great pen. It just makes me want to sign my name all day long. It, uh, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to maybe writing in my journal later, which I haven't done in a while, just so I can write more with this pen. I love it. So keep that in mind. Uniball Vision Elite. Keep that in one bucket. On Saturday, my mother-in-law and my one of my eight siblings-in-law, my sister-in-law, Sarah, came over my house. They um, wanted to uh, see my wife. My wife's birthday is coming up. Uh, they wanted to see Carmine. Carmine's getting big. And initially, my other uh, sister-in-law was coming over, too, so they were going to see her and her new baby, but she was a little under the weather, so she didn't make the trip out. So we have lunch, and we're talking, having a good time. And then uh, Sarah says, well, why don't we play a game? 
So Rachel points, we have this ottoman that opens up and has storage in it in our in our main family room. And Rachel says, oh, yeah, there's a lot of games in there. And she pulls out a lot of, you know, the games. And she says, oh, who wants to play Risk? No, it's going to take too long. It's going to be four and a half hours. I wasn't saying anything, but my mother-in-law who had to drive back to Long Island because she works out there, she was saying this, and they were coming together. So, um, okay, no, not Risk. How about Monopoly? Same thing, too long. And then ultimately, the game that they settle on, and I said I would go along with the consensus because I try to do that. I try to be a guy that goes with the flow most of the time, right? I don't try to uh, be the fly in the ointment if anybody wants to do anything. So they decide to play Jeopardy, the board game Jeopardy. Now, I played this before, but the way it works is there's usually three contestants, although I guess there could be more. And it's a fun game, the home version of of Jeopardy. And there's a quiz master. Now, the one time I played this, I was the quiz master. You're basically like the moderator of the, you know, of the game. And so, you know, I said I would be the quiz master if people wanted. I, I like to do the whole game show host routine. But I got the sense that Sarah kind of wanted to be the quiz master. And honestly, I did want to play to see how well I would do at the game. And because I didn't get to play the last time we played this four years ago, I was a- asking, you know, I was the quiz master. So we're playing Jeopardy. And it com- there comes to a time where part of the instructions are you have to have all the players have pens. So there's three people playing. My wife, me, my mother-in-law. And I was doing, so you have to get three pens for Final Jeopardy to write out your wager and to write out your final clue. And I was doing really well in this game. I was dominating a big portion of the game, but a couple of things happened. One, I was a little ambitious, overly ambitious, and I uh, I kept buzzing in and getting questions incorrect. So I ended up giving a lot of money back. Also, my wife got, I think, all three daily doubles. So she was able to get the first daily double in the round one, and then she was able to get both daily doubles in double jeopardy. So she racked up a lot of money. So we go into final jeopardy, and she's got 16800 and I had $15,000. So she's ahead of me. My mother-in-law didn't get to participate in Final Jeopardy because she didn't have any money left. So it's Rachel and me, Final Jeopardy. And the category is fictional places. So I'm thinking, I, you know, I don't want to underwager because I can't allow Rachel to beat me. And I wager, I think, $5,000, which I'm thinking, okay. Maybe Rachel won't wager that much if we both get it right. I'm thinking I might know it. Maybe it's Xanadu. Maybe it's uh, Shangri-La. Maybe it's, um, I don't know, Some maybe it's the rivers. Uh, maybe it's Hades. Maybe it's Mount Olympus. Maybe it's, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes's house. Maybe it's 1313 Mockingbird Lane. There's so many f- fictional places. I, You know, I know a little bit about fiction. So I, I wager $5,000. Sarah reads the clue, and the first words are in the Hunger Games. And both Rachel and I groan, 
because neither of us have read The Hunger Games or watched any of The Hunger Games films. So obviously we both didn't know it. And so I made a guess about the fictional place, and um, I had no idea what it was. And you know what I didn't do? What these losers on Jeopardy do so often these days and write a personal message to someone, hi, mom, or something. I thought about doing that just to illustrate how absurd it is, but then I said, let me not be a part of the problem. Let me play the game as I would play Jeopardy. So I get it wrong. Rachel gets it wrong. But but she didn't wager a lot of money, so she wins the game. So the game ends. Everybody is wrapping up. Sarah and my mother-in-law getting ready to drive back to Long Island. And I start collecting the pens that I've distributed. One pen was a Judge Brendan Lantry for Judge Pen. Another pen was from my accountant, David Egan, who actually inspired my own pens. It's a very, very nice pen, the kind of pens that I use. And then the other pen, just because those were the two that I had nearby, the other pen, I took the pen out of the notebook, which was on my kitchen table. It was my Uniball Vision Elite. So I gave that to Sarah to keep score. Right. And to do make other notes that the moderator needs to make. So I had a total of four pens. So Sarah's got this pen. She's using it throughout the game. Serving her well. We clean up everything. Clean up all the food. Clean up all the discarded pieces of paper. Everybody's getting ready to leave. And I see the four pens on the kitchen table. Sarah. Where is the cap to my pen? The pen is there, but no cap. Said, uh, are you sure you gave it to me with a cap? Oh, yes, I'm sure, Sarah. And my wife, who, if there's a chance to side with a stranger over me on any possible dispute that I'm having with anybody, she will absolutely always take the side of the stranger because she's relatively sure that I'm always wrong. She says, no, 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 Sarah. Frank pays pretty close attention to these pens and and he knows what he's got. If he says that there was a pen cap on it, uh, I think there was a pen cap on it. So we start looking all over the table. Not there. Maybe it rolled on the ground. Sarah and I are now looking all over the ground. Now, Rachel is back to taking care of Carmine. My mother-in-law is moving on with her life. And Sarah and I are now on the ground looking for this pen cap. Check your pockets. Check your pockets. Okay. No, it's not in Sarah's pockets. Now, I... You know, not inappropriately, but I start patting her down. I check her pockets. Not there. You've got a problem. So uh, Sarah says, check your pockets. I said, Sarah, why would I have the pen cap? I'm, you were the one writing with Check your pockets. I check my pockets. All right, everybody check their pockets. Everybody checks their pockets. No pen cap. Is it possible it was thrown away? So Sarah and I now start. Digging through the garbage. We start digging through our trash can. And and in some detail, both of us, trying to find this pen cap. Can't find it. Sarah goes to check the bathroom. Maybe she uh, took it with her when when, when she used the restroom. Not in the restroom. We're looking all over the floor. Maybe it rolled somewhere. Maybe Carmine brought it somewhere. Nope, he was napping during the game. Nope. Okay, maybe it's in the garbage we threw out. Sarah goes into my garage, to her credit. She looks like she's really looking. She goes into my garage and opens the bag of garbage that we've now already thrown out. Not there. 
We're looking all over the place for this pen cap. We're looking for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And now I'm simultaneously looking online because I don't want this pen to dry. I've, I've gotten so much great use out of this pen, and it always is there for me. It's just Johnny on the spot. It's a great pen. So we're looking all over the place. And I'm looking online to see if I can order a replacement pen cap. You can't. I have to order a whole nother pen for $15. I said, the amount of money that I've spent on pens over the last year, does it make sense for me to buy another $15 pen? Probably not. And I probably have other ones of these in one of my drawers. And maybe there's an opportunity to break in one of the many other types of pens that I haven't even used yet. So I'm about to... Throw in the towel. Sarah feels bad now. She said, are you sure you gave it to me? Are you sure you gave it to me? She's looking everywhere. My mother-in-law says, meanwhile, my mother-in-law doesn't care about this. She's she's ready for this to be over with. She's she's not at all happy about the two hours of traffic that she's going to face driving back to Long Island. She doesn't care. So uh, we're looking all over the place, and I said, Sarah, don't worry about it. Because, look, I realize I'm making a big thing over a pen cap. Okay. I, even I have some perspective. We're all saying goodbye. Hug my mother-in-law. Kiss my mother-in-law. Hugging Sarah. Kiss Sarah. And I'm hugging her. And I said, let me let me pat her back one last time. She's wearing a sweatshirt. And I feel a knot in her hood of her sweatshirt. Sure enough. I said, what is this? And I go into her hood. And I grab the pen cap. The pen cap was in her hood. And I don't know whether she was hiding it there. Or if not, I don't know how it ended up there. She said, how did this end up here? And then my mother-in-law and Sarah concoct this theory that I planted the pen cap there. Which I assure you, I did not do. So, and she's she's saying, no, no, why, how is it there? How did it get there? I didn't do anything with it. And my mother-in-law saying, he put it there. He planted it there. He's playing a joke on you. It's a magician. It's sleight of hand. And it's not. Why would I have dug through the garbage if I planted the pen cap in, in her hood? So, sure enough, the story at least has a happy ending. In that I was able to locate my pen cap, but it was uh, a harrowing 15 minutes. Uh, But I do recommend this Uniball Vision Elite. You know, I I looked online because I was trying to remember who was it that told me that um, that the uh, this was a good pen to try. And I don't remember who it was. But uh, and I said maybe it was the New York Times because I didn't. I went and did research based on all the suggestions people made because the New York Times came out with their best pens of 2022, and they recommend the Uniball Jetstream RT, and they say that's the best ballpoint pen for everyday writing. So I don't think I've tried that one yet. But um, this this Uniball Vision Elite, that's on point. And again, I'm glad I have a couple more of these at home. But I would have been very sad and quite upset had uh, this pen dried out because that pen cap went missing. 
Let it be a lesson to you, though. If someone lends you a pen, you got a responsibility to take care of it. You got a responsibility to take care of it, cap and all. Now, should I have lent this pen? No, maybe I should have lent another pen. But, you know, I figured we're all family. I have my eyes on the pen and everything. And I figured I'd lend it. Happy ending. I found the pen cap. And all's well. Just be careful, folks. This is a public service announcement. 800-848-9222. Alyssa is in Manhattan. Hello, Alyssa. Hey, Frank. Thank you so much for letting me comment. Sure. Um, actually, um, after I make my comment, I'd just like to say something about the pen thing you were talking sure, about. Sure. Be my guest. The I came across some really good information today. Right. Okay. But what I wanted to comment was the little girl that you were talking about that helped her mom out. You forgot to give commendations to her parents. Yeah. Because that little girl would never have had the tools to manage her fear in a productive way. And I'm assuming that that came from her parents. You know, that's a great point. Uh, and uh, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, they absolutely deserve a lot of credit for that. 100%. I mean, we have so many times you have parents that imprint their own fears upon their children. And then when they grow up to be neurotic, wonder why. You know, that's and, so interesting that you say that because in this in the weekend, uh, this weekend in the New York Times, there was an article by um, uh, David French, I believe it was, who says, uh, are people wondering why children are depressed and anxious? Maybe it's because their parents are that way. And it's, it's, he makes the same point that you did just now. Very interesting. Well, I mean, look at look at our society, what we do with um our college students where they're whining, oh, somebody said something mean to me, and then they have their safe spaces. I mean, you know, people just have to learn how to manage and, and, and control themselves and their own emotions instead of letting outside influence control them. Yeah. No, no, no. That's good advice. Thank you. Okay. Alyssa. But what I wanted to also, you, you reminded me, I was reading an article earlier today about pens and specifically about a scam that's going on now where criminals are getting hold of people's checks and they're check washing. So like, say um, there was one story where this guy put his um, check into, in you know, his uh, check to the insurance company in the mailbox outside the post office on a Saturday evening where it wasn't going to be like taken inside till Monday. And criminals went in, they use like sticky things and they rob the mailbox. And what they do is they take bleach or some other kind of substance and they rub out the who it's for, the amount, and just leave the signature intact. And then they write in their own name Oof. and some other amount and cash the check. And this happened to they use like check cashing places, places that you know, which we'll we'll call and since it's got a valid signature, you know, it, it's a lot of times it goes right through. But one of the things they recommended was to prevent this from happening, to use a gel pen because it absorbs into the paper. Oh, interesting. That's good to know. Good so to know. I thought that I would just share that with your listeners. You know, you reminded me of that. But, yeah, this is the latest scam that they're putting us Yeah, through. well, that's good to know, Alyssa. Thank you. Uh, way to keep Thanks. us informed. Appreciate that. Yeah, I have. The, I had some pens made. I just gave one to uh, my colleague, Noam Layden, and I've given some to you know our crew here. And they're basically just promotional names. They have the name of our, our show on them and, and my Twitter. 
and how people can listen to the podcast. And uh, they're really nice pens, but I had gel pens made because I like to write with gel pens a lot of the time. And uh, they're very good pens. They have a, a stylus on the other side. But when I meet people that are fans of the show, I'll give them a pen. If, if you ever meet me and you're a fan of the show and you say, hey, I enjoy the show, I'll, I'll, I usually have a few on me and I'll give you one. I don't, I don't want to get into the, the habit of mailing them out because I, um, it gets into a situation of paying for postage or uh, trying to ask the station for paying, the, paying for postage. I don't want to do that. But um, if you ever meet me in person I, and you say you're a fan of the show, even if you're lying, I will give you a pen. So that's that. I do want to mention, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention um, and acknowledge, that, um, what year is it? 2023. 18 years ago, 18 years ago, um, was one, today, was one of the most remarkable moments and most memorable moments in my life. Uh, It started on the 19th. Started on St. Joseph's Day. By the way, shout out to everybody who celebrated yesterday. I brought in some St. Joseph's cakes for anybody that wants to uh, try them, and uh, along with some rainbow cookies. They're in the kitchen if anyone wants to try them. But what I was going to say is uh, in 2005, March 19th, I began, I was still hosting a public access cable TV show in Staten Island, and I began uh, a 33-hour TV talk show. And at the time, we set the Guinness World Record for longest live TV talk show marathon by doing a 33-hour show. And um, that was really very special. One, it was an enormous amount of fun. Uh, We got a lot of of press for that. The New York Post wrote about it at the time. I think that might have been one of the first times I was mentioned in page six. Uh, Obviously, a lot of local press. And um, a lot of great folks were on the show. At the time I broke the record, the record was 30 hours. At the time we broke the record for 30 hours, that moment was simulcast live on WABC uh, on Brian Whitman's show at the time, which was great. And Curtis Sliwa and his son, Anthony Chester Sliwa, were with me at the time that we broke the record at 30 hours. A lot of other great guests were on that show. A lot of folks that are no longer with us, people like Joe Franklin, uh, people like Richard Ornstein, people like uh, Pete DiLorenzo, a lot of other people that were on that show I'm still friends with to this day. But uh, it was really an incredible, incredibly Herculean labor of love. And a lot of folks really helped with this. That this but for if any one of them wasn't around, I would not have been able to get this done. For starters, um, both both my parents, but especially my mom, uh, were really helpful. But my mom, I don't think, slept the entire time. She stayed there the entire time helping me manage the show, and uh, very grateful for that. My friend Dennis Petoff, who celebrated his birthday this weekend, he was there, a great guy, all still in the event videography business. I used to work for him in the event videography business. If you're ever in the mood for, if you ever need a good videographer for your wedding or something, email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I'll put you in touch with Dennis. He was absolutely essential. King Henry, who you can still see to this day as uh, the on-field mascot for the or the on-field host for the Brooklyn Cyclones, he he was a big part of this. 
not only in front of the camera, but behind the scenes, and uh, a number of other folks. Trish Bauman, who we call affectionately Trish the Dish, it was her birthday this past weekend. She was an integral part of uh, everything that occurred with uh, with the marathon. And uh, it was really a challenging thing to do. It was something I had to train for for months. But um, I was really just one part of it. There were all sorts of rules that Guinness had to had to make you adhere to in order to qualify for the record. You needed a certain amount of people in the audience at the same time. You needed there were certain rules on when you could take breaks and when you could do that. And um, it was uh, a real a real honor uh, to be able to do that. The record's been broken a hundred times since then. I think the record is now something like eighty hours. It's something crazy. And uh, I don't have the time (laughs) to train to do it again these days. But who knows if uh, if um, if the circumstances line up accordingly, we may go back and try and do that one more time or do something similar to that. Maybe the radio equivalent. But um, it was a really special moment in my life. It's a moment that I'll never forget. And I'm really grateful to everybody. I know I only mentioned a handful of people. But there were a lot of people that helped uh, with that show in varying capacities. Uh, so I'm grateful to everybody that watched, and I'm grateful to everybody that uh, that helped with the program, and there were many. So uh, thank you to everybody that watched and everybody that volunteered to help or everybody that was in the audience. And uh, I'm, I'm really still blown away at 18 years later how many people come up to me and mention that they still saw that they saw that show. Because it was simulcast in other places as well. Brooklyn carried it and a number of other places, which uh, which was very nice. Tibor Spiegel, who was the executive director of CTV at the time, uh, he was a great help. And uh, it was really just a, an incredibly special moment in my life and uh, one that I think about a great deal. And this is the last thing I'll say about it. At the time, I had one of those calendars, one of those pull-off calendars, where you pull off one date and then another one are, emerges. After after that day, after it was March 19th or 20th, I don't remember which one I stopped on, I stopped pulling dates off that calendar. And for the rest of that time that, that I, uh, before I moved, uh, for years later, I kept that calendar on my bureau with March 20th on it because I never wanted to forget that day. It was really... Uh, whenever I'm asked my greatest accomplishment, uh, that that it stands out as as it just uh, physically, mentally, and in terms of organizationally, it was very special. And uh, a lot of folks that were a part of that are no longer around uh, today, but uh, a lot of folks that watched and a lot of folks that were there still are. So thank you to everybody that helped as well. And uh, one day I'd like to transfer, try and transfer all 33 of those hours to DVD or something, but uh, that's going to take some time. All right. In uh, case you want to comment on anything we're talking about, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In a moment, a movie that's been around for almost a half century that I just finally got around to seeing. I'll tell you what it was, and uh, and we'll take your calls at 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Pete Lorenzo uh, singing They All Remind Me of You. Uh, this was a, a terrific song uh, that he sang right, uh, right after I broke the record. And um, Pete, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. Um, but um, he, he came and sang this song on the 33 Hour Show. And right after we broke the record, uh, Joe Franklin was there. I believe. Actually, no, it was not right after. It was before we broke the record. But it was clear we were going to break it. I think it was right around the 24-hour mark, right? And it was clear that, you know, I had hit a stride because it didn't always look like we were going to break it. Uh, about six hours into it, I'm interviewing the amazing amazing Kraskin, and my nose starts gushing blood, gushing blood. And, you know, my dad was quoted in the newspaper at the time as saying he thought we were done. At that time. But if I had been interviewing anybody except the amazing Kreskin, we would have been done. But the camera just went to Kreskin. And, you know, Kreskin can talk for 45 minutes. So I asked him one question, and then he just does his thing for 10 minutes while I stop the bleeding on my nose. And uh, we were able to continue. You know, it's funny. I uh, came across the video of Pete singing this song that we just played on... um, uh, you know, on that 33-hour show. So I'm going to link to it right now on my uh, Facebook page, and uh, you can watch it at the as it appeared. That song on Morano Vision from that 33-hour show, you'll see Joe Franklin in the background, and you'll see me behind Joe Franklin's desk, uh, which he was kind enough to give me at the time. So I, I just posted that. You can watch it when you want. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. So I finally got around. I don't know what in the world took me so long. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that I never saw this picture until Saturday morning. But uh, I finally got around to seeing the 1976 comedy film Car Wash with uh, Richard Pryor, uh, George Carlin, Professor Irwin Corey, uh, uh, Jack Keogh, Antonio Vargas. And I have to tell you, I absolutely loved this picture. And apparently I'm not the only one. It's got something like an 89% approval on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I I still am one of the few people that gets the DVDs in net, from Netflix. So I watched it on DVD. It's not streaming, but I have the DVD and I, and I sent it back and I'll see what they present me next. This film is silly, 
it's basically an episodic sketch comedy uh, about a close-knit group of workers at a car wash. It's a trim- it's wonderful. There's great music in it. You ever hear the song Car Wash? It's from that picture. And there's a lot of other good music in the film as well. The cast is just brilliant. It's enormously talented and it's just wonderfully paced. It's a wonderful film. It's kind of become a, a cult classic these days. They say it's mostly a black cast. There are white people in it, but I'd say it's an 80% black cast. And they say that it didn't do as well because the the market had moved on from films centered on black people. It still made money, but it didn't make monstrous money. And they say because it was maybe four or five years too late for that appeal to black motion picture audiences. So I enjoyed it. If you haven't seen it, make a point of watching Car Watch. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I used to, uh, I was very lucky as a child. Uh, my parents, even though they got divorced when I was relatively young, uh, I got to spend a great deal of time with, with both of them. And I, one of the things that I had the opportunity to do, and I don't know that I fully appreciate it. No, let me correct that. I know that I did not fully appreciate what I'm about to mention. But one of the things that I got the opportunity to do because they would take me was to go to a lot of uh, a lot of Broadway shows. So I saw a lot of Broadway shows as a child, which were uh, which were which were great, which were was really a lot of fun. Then, you know, when I got a little older, I uh, would still go to Broadway shows with my family and stuff like that. But then I would go on my own once in a while. You take a date, you take a friend, maybe even once in a while go by yourself. And uh, it's still a lot of fun. These days, I go maybe once a year. And the once a year is usually my wife's birthday. You know, our house is overflowing with stuff. There's stuff upon stuff. We took a, we took a, a garbage bag full, a large garbage bag full of Carmine's toys that he has that have never been opened. We've stuffed a garbage bag full of them, and because people keep giving them toys, and so my wife says, anybody gives them any more toys now, we're giving them away. So we filled a garbage bag full of toys to donate yesterday. So uh, the point is, both of us, my wife and I, are kind of on the same page. We don't really need men any anything 
substantial in the way of gifts. We have everything, or if there's not something that we, if we, it is not something that we have, we would purchase it for ourselves. So whenever we have an occasion, a birthday or a whatever gift giving occasion there might be, we generally prefer, and we've tried to do this with Carmine as well, for people that would come to his birthday, we try to say, don't give him a gift. We do what we do for one another, which is give him an experience. And a lot of people did that for Carmine. They'd get him a membership to the zoo or tickets to a train ride or a membership to the children's museum, something like that. So that's what my wife and I do. And usually what we'll do for my wife's birthday is we will go to see a Broadway show and then we'll go to dinner. And then we'll invite uh, my siblings and her siblings uh, to come with us. And uh, then we'll go have dinner afterwards. So um, that's what we're going to do in uh, a couple of weeks. And we're both looking forward to that. It'll be a lot of fun. But um, an interesting thing occurred to me, and it's occurred to me before, but I I thought I'd mention it. I was um, looking at what shows to see on Broadway. And I, I talked with Mike Gallagher who, in addition to being one of the most listened-to radio talk show hosts in the country and a good friend, he is quite a Broadway aficionado. He goes to Broadway shows every, every, I'm going to say every week, pretty much. Every week that he's in New York, anyway. So, I asked him, Mike, if you're picking the five best musicals on Broadway right now, what are you picking? And he gives me his five. And then... uh, my friend Arthur Idala is another, he's a lawyer, but he's another very theatrical guy. He studied theater in uh, in school and enjoys going to theater. He gives me his review of the five must-see shows. And uh, I'm going through these listings as I'm buying tickets now, not only for my wife and me, but for a couple, one of my siblings, a couple of her siblings, a couple of our cousins, some. And I'm struck by how even even seats that aren't necessarily the best are pretty expensive for almost all these shows. Now, we got a pretty good deal on the show that we're going to see. We're going to go see uh, Moulin Rouge, uh, which I really enjoyed the movie Moulin Rouge. My wife has never seen it, but she that that recommendation from Mike Gallagher really held a lot of weight with her. And. I thought to myself, you know, a lot of uh, children really aren't as lucky as I was to be able to have parents that can afford to take them to shows that are $100, $150, $200 a ticket. And I I thought to myself, what a shame that is that a lot of uh, young people really never get exposed to Broadway purely for socioeconomic reasons. Now, I know they have the uh, TKTS booth where you can go there and you can get half price tickets. And that is a great deal. That is a great deal. But if tickets are, you know, $100, $50 is still out of the budget for a lot of people, right? Especially if you have two children and you there are two parents going. It's, you know, a couple hundred dollars, which for a middle class family is is tough. You know, obviously, and you look at who goes to these Broadway shows. And for the most part, a lot of the people attending, they tend to be tourists and people that are on the upper echelon of the socioeconomic threshold. 
So I was wondering, what do you think we can do? I think there's some value in exposing younger people to theater in general and Broadway theater in specifically. Now, I know there's a lot of free ways that you can see theatrical productions, but not necessarily on Broadway that I've seen. And last year, after a real tough time with the pandemic, Broadway has bounced back in a big way. Um, Last year was one of the best years they've had in the history of Broadway. They are uh, taking in um, hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe more, actually. I'm, I'm trying to see if these are monthly numbers. or Yeah, I mean, look, Broadway and the Broadway theatrical production, they're raking it in, in record amounts. And part of the reason they're able to do that is they charge a lot of money, and people want to see the shows. So is there a way that exists currently? And if there's not, let's conceive of one. But is there a way that exists currently to take folks, not who are poor, I'm not talking about the homeless, but I'm talking about a regular middle class or lower middle class, working class uh, child, and get them exposed to Broadway shows at a young age? And maybe, I think there's some value to it. Maybe some of you disagree. Broadway ticket attendance revenue was up 137% compared to the previous year. Uh, No, that's revenue, 137%. Attendance is up 127%. The industry is ramping up. And I'm wondering if maybe there should be, I don't know if there's a lottery to get free show tickets, but I, I think maybe if there could be, I don't know, one free show a week that people could enter into a drawing to go to. I think that a lot of people may like that. Is there anything like that? If not, do you think there should be? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. But first it all starts with if you share my premise that there is a positive benefit to younger folks who might not be able to afford tickets to a Broadway show being able to go. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with original Rick on um, in New Jersey who has spent a lot of time working on Broadway. Hello, Rick. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, press it. Remember that. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Have you ever heard of Mark Rylance? He won the Academy Award for Bridge of Spies. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure that I've 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 heard of him, but it doesn't ring a bell at the moment. Okay. Well, he's he's the world's you know expert on Shakespeare. He ran the Shakespearean. Oh yeah, I, I just looked at his picture. Okay, I've seen him a hundred times. Sure, I know. Okay. Okay. Well, whenever he does Shakespeare and Broadway, he has in his contract that one-fifth of the tickets, 200 out of 1,000, have to be offered for $50 or less so that the students can come and see Shakespeare and fall in love with that. He doesn't want the ticket prices to keep young people from seeing the the, uh, 
the beauty of Shakespeare. And I always thought that was great, that in his contract, he will not do the show unless they, they do that. Well, that is great. I didn't know that. And I'm, I'm glad you told me. And that, uh, that certainly to his credit. Is there anything, Rick, as it is, but for a, a star like Mark Rylance, is there anything currently that allows people that may not have a lot of money to take advantage of occasionally going to see a show at a super discounted rate or maybe even for free, like I'm suggesting, like some sort of a lottery? Yeah, most most shows, to get a tax break from the city, have to offer 25 to 50 between, the, between those tickets for $35 or less every day. They show up early in the morning before the box office opens because it's first come, first served. And it's and you can't get two tickets. It's if you want two people to go, you have to have two people online. So that that every day you can get a discounted ticket if you're willing to show up before nine o'clock. Yeah, no, I am. I am familiar with that. I, I mean, the one thing that I'm thinking is like if you're a parent that wanted to take your child, that really doesn't help you, right? I mean, because no, you can't you no, can't no, take it. You, you just got to get two six seats up in the balcony where they're the cheapest. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Rick, do you share my view that there should be something regularly for young people to be able to? Listen, Frank, I work on Broadway and I can't afford to to go there. I can't afford to go to the shows that I work on, you know? Yeah. uh, I I believe it. I I see these prices and uh, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. The front, when the front rows, they all used to be the same down on the, uh, on the, uh, orchestra now they're up to like 750 for the front row isn't it it's insane you yeah know, you can go on a cruise for that amount of money it's uh, for sure rick hey what's your favorite show on broadway right now right now it would be uh uh, uh the phantom because it's going to close i don't know if you've ever seen it it is the most incredible performance you'd ever seen yeah no i i have it it certainly is a uh a great show, no doubt about it. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jason in the Bronx has been holding. Hello, Jason. Hey, good morning. Um, I just want to uh, talk about the uh, Iraq war. Um, the Iraq war, uh, I actually, uh, I was in college when the Iraq war happened. And uh, what I'd like to know is... Um, what I learned is that uh, America should not be involved in endless wars because I th- I think that Iraq has gotten worse than when we went in. Well, look, uh, as I stated at the um, start of our second hour, there are a couple of areas where Iraq has definitely improved, namely freedom. But I would agree with you on balance. Iraq is a much worse place than before our intervention. 800-848-9222. Hannah is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Hannah. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. I found a solution for you. Um, I'm nice to talk to well, you. it's not me. It's not a solution for me necessarily. I'm talking about no, no, just no. young people in general. Yeah, I got it. I got it for you. Okay. It expires tomorrow, though, unfortunately. It's called Kids Night on Broadway. And um, if you look on the website, Kids Night on Broadway, it says that Kids Night on Broadway, age 18 and under, can attend a participating Broadway show for free. When accompanied by a full paying adult, okay, they could get fifty percent off. It ends tomorrow, though. Um, okay, yeah. well, I mean that's a nice thing. Well, not, well, Tuesday. All right, well, yeah. that's a nice thing. And if people want to take advantage of that, Hannah, how do they do that? 
So um, they go on the website, uh, like I said, Kids Night on Broadway, and then they could buy a full Broadway ticket, and then the kids get 50% off, the 18 and under. Oh, see, um, thank you, Hannah. It still is pretty expensive, though. You know, I, I'm talking about something regularly that would allow younger people who may not be as fortunate as I was to have parents that could afford to take you to um, a show a couple times a year, right? I mean, is there anything like that? I mean, if not, I think there should be. Uh, even if it's just a, a lottery that you can enter into. You know, that they, I know that they do that for a lot of popular TV shows that have live studio audiences. Um, so far, you know, I'm not blown away at the level of creativity in terms of uh, people's solutions thus far. So give me a call if you have a, an idea. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Hey, you know who's going to be here tomorrow? Um, well, not here in studio, but, uh, but on the phone. The father of Julian Assange is going to be here. We've had Julian Assange's brother on before, but I don't believe I've ever spoken with his father. So uh, he's working hard to try and get his his son released from the released from custody and get these charges dropped. And I uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. So if you have any suggestions for a good question for him, feel free to email me. And um, I have a few other tricks up my sleeve tomorrow that I'm that I'm working on. So we'll get into we'll get into that. I um and and I know I said that I was hoping to record a new edition of the Racket Report on Friday. The guest that I was scheduled to talk to just sort of disappeared. He he ghosted me. So I'm hoping to track him down today and maybe record something on that today. So we'll see where that goes. If you want to find me on Twitter, by the way, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. If you want to find me on Facebook, you can do so at Facebook.com slash M O R A N O fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. What I would caution you, though, is I got a message yesterday from one of our listeners who follows the Facebook page, and she said that someone basically took my photo and took my name and changed it slightly and he was he was friending her he sent her a friend request and it's not me so um just so you know i'm not sending friend requests to anybody so if you get a friend request from frank morano it is not from me that is from uh some imposter so unless i've been split by a transporter like uh captain kirk in that star trek episode the enemy within then, um, uh, and that's unlikely to have occurred, uh, having never been transported before, I would encourage you, if you get a friend request from Frank Morano, please decline it. Please decline it. It's a public page. You can follow the page. I post stuff on there. You could send me a message through there. Although Facebook's a little clunky with the messages. I don't always see the messages uh, for some reason. The best way, if you want to send me a message, is to email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. All right. Not seeing any uh, good new ideas on the bringing Broadway to the impoverished youth of New York. We will move on to the $1,000 Minute. If you would like to try your hand at winning $1,000, then be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you can uh, answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds... 
we'll give you an opportunity to win a thousand dollars. All you have to do is be the seventh caller to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds and do it all correctly, and you'll be a thousand dollars richer. We'll do that straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Milano. We're going to do the $1,000 Minute in just a moment. And then uh, a little bit later, we'll give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of 15 Seconds of Fame. That's always a very interesting and popular feature of our show. Uh, But first, why don't we try and give some lucky person an opportunity to win some money? The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let me say hello to Anne-Marie in Manhattan. Hello, Anne-Marie. Hi, how are you? I'm well, Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, have you heard this segment before? No. No, okay, good. Okay, let me explain briefly what goes on. So I'm going to ask you 10 trivia questions. Uh, they're relatively easy. So if an answer seems uh, too too easy, like uh, how many vowels are there or how many continents there are uh, or how many letters in the alphabet, they are that easy. Just just shout out the first thing that comes to your mind. And then um, the, you're going to have 60 seconds to answer them all correctly. The timer will begin after I ask the first question. And then um, if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question so that we can try and get all get in all 10 of these questions in 60 seconds. OK, simple enough. Nope. OK. All right. Yes. All right. What month is it? March. How many sides does a rectangle have? A rectangle. Oh, my God. Four. What war started 20 years ago today? Uh, Vietnam. Oh, Iran. Ah, uh, no, I'm sorry. Um, oh, we have uh, not yet been to war with Iran. It was Iraq. Oh, Iraq. Iraq. Uh, I, know. I knew what I wanted to check. Yeah. Uh, see, it's, it's, uh, I'm sorry, Emery, but hang That's on. Okay. You give uh, Kenneth your information. We'll send you a consolation prize, okay? Oh, thank you. I should think. Um, and if uh, you want to purchase some of the merchandise, see, the magnets were given away now to the contestants on the uh other side of midnight, you can't purchase them. You can only get them by playing the game. So it's kind of if you see someone with one of these magnets on their refrigerator, you know they play the game. If you want to uh, purchase any other great other side of midnight merchandise, you can do so at store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. 
That's store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. And then uh, whatever you purchase on there, if you use the promo code FRANK15, I believe you save uh, 15% off, which I'd appreciate because it lets the folks here at the station know you heard about it on our show. If you use our promo code, it doesn't get me anything. I don't make any money from it, but it's just nice. And it's cool gear. We could use the... You know, the publicity for the show. I, I just bought a whole bunch of new stuff from the store, too. Uh, so you'll see me decked out in my other side of midnight gear from time to time. All right. We have eight open lines. If you want to comment on anything that we have um, we've covered thus far or anything that you're you're eager to bring up, you can do so at 800-848-9222. Want to wish a happy birthday to pro wrestler Sting. Sting, whose real name is Steve Borden for years, was a star in pro wrestling. And he was probably the, for years, the, this is no longer true, but for years, he was probably the best-known wrestler never to have wrestled for the WWE. Now I think finally he did break, he, he has wrestled for the WWE, so it's his birthday today. Happy birthday to him. Also, the uh, terrific sports radio host, Mike Francesa, 69 years old today. It's his birthday. NBA Hall of Fame coach, Pat Riley, 78 years old today. A lot of sports people today. I always say this, that I'm always intrigued by people of similar professions who end up all being born or having the same birthday. Like Rush Limbaugh and uh, Howard Stern having the same birthday. What are the chances of that? Um, but uh, Mike Francesa, it's his birthday today. Uh, NBA Hall of Fame coach Pat Riley, NHL Hall of Famer and Stanley Cup champion Bobby Orr, his birthday as well. So if you're celebrating a birthday today, it, you are celebrating with those folks. And uh, he's not an athlete, but he's a big sports fan. And he goes on radio and uh, so much commenting about sports. I think you could call him a sports commentator. Actor Michael Rappaport, who I believe is a friend of uh, of Sid Rosenberg and has certainly been on with Sid a bunch of times. He uh, goes on a bunch of other radio shows, too. And uh, a fine actor. He was on season two of Only Murders in the Building. He was terrific. And he was uh, on, uh, you know, he was in a phenomenal Sylvester Stallone movie called Copland, uh, which which I enjoyed very much. So uh, Michael Rappaport turning 53 years old. Isn't that amazing that he's 53? He's one of those guys that you always picture as being sort of eternally young. And uh, he is 53 years of age today. All right. 800-848-9222. Marie is on Long Island. Marie, what's on your mind? That's a great movie. I've seen it about maybe 50 times. Which movie? Copland? No, uh, Car Wash. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Excellent movie. I know the whole song to the whole words. But but do you, can I ask you a real quick question before yeah, I go? Yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead, Marie. Why are you, you whispering? That, I don't know. Do you know that Do you know that wrestler that was a man and now he's a woman? He has uh, videos on the Internet. I don't. He's, he's, he, he's a phenomenal, interesting character. Alon something. He's a, he was a wrestler, a professional wrestler, and now he's a woman, and he's and it's incredible. Is it is 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 it Nyla Rose? Is that it? No, no. Oh, I can't think of it. But he's on TikTok all the time, where she is. 
But anyway, it's a, he's a very interesting person, um, you know, because it reminds me of uh, Bruce Jenner in a way. Yeah, uh, I I bet I bet I bet she is interesting and uh you know, everything and what she's been through that uh it's it's incredible with 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 the internet these days. Yeah. It, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, um if you haven't seen Fatso, see Fatso. Oh, of course I've seen Fatso. <laughs> I love them. And uh, talking about the plays. I, I we go to the plays every couple of years and they are very expensive now. A theater, local theater. I support all the local theaters out here on the East End. All the little theaters. Yeah, very and, I, and I'm not. And I think that's important. I think it's great it that is. you do that. Um, but I and thanks for the call, Marie. I just think there's something different when it comes to the scale and grandeur of a Broadway theatrical production. Not knocking local theater at all. I think local theater is important and. You know, again, I haven't been to a local theatrical production in a while because my schedule is a little crazy these days. But when I was more able, I would go to support local local theater as well. And there's some great local productions. Um, you know, no doubt about that. All right, 800-848-9222. My email is uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, you may remember this. I brought to your attention that um, I believe it's pronounced erythritol. It's a sweetener, and it was thought for years to be a healthy sweetener. And then a study came out, and look, the defenders of erythritol say that this study is flawed. But a study came out showing that this sugar replacement, erythritol, could be linked to blood clots, stroke, and death. So when this study first came out, you know, last thing I need is a blood clot, stroke, or a de- or death, right? So I wanted to make sure that I was not consuming anything that had erythritol in it. And the only thing I thought that I might be consuming is uh, Zevia. Because it has Zevia in it. Um, excuse me, it has Stevia in it. And a lot of the times the products that have Stevia in it, they'll also have erythritol in it. But sure enough, I checked the label on the Zevia. No, no erythritol. Now, my wife drinks vitamin water, the calorie-free vitamin water. Uh, and she'll have at least one a day, usually with uh, with lunch, sometimes with, with dinner, but usually with lunch. And I checked the bottle of... I check the ingredients, and erythritol is an ingredient on the, you know, in the thing. And my wife's an adult. She can make her own decisions. She's very smart. She's not alarmist at all. She does her own research. So I've noticed that she pours a little bit of this vitamin water in my son's sippy cup, and he'll drink maybe an ounce of it a day. So that's basically eight ounces, seven ounces a week. It's almost a bottle a week. So figure he's drinking 47 bottles a year. So I say to my wife yesterday, I said, honey, I, uh, I'm not crazy about Carmine, who's young, only 16 months old. Not crazy about him being exposed to erythritol. This one study came came out, and look, maybe I'm being a little overly cautious. Probably am. 
but since he's growing and developing and he's growing so much right now, maybe we just keep him away from the erythritol. Maybe don't get, maybe we try and limit his vitamin water intake. And um, sure enough, my wife, because I had previously raised objections to red dye number five. And apparently she was unconvinced. She said, no, look. And she went and did look at the studies and she found that there, were, there was a very weak correlation. And she found you'd have to eat so much red dye number five before it did anything bad to you. So uh, she convinced me on that one. So she goes and does this research on erythritol, erythritol and she sees the same things that I saw. She's like, oh, maybe we should keep this away from them. And she says, well... Let's look at the because we went shopping Saturday or Sunday, one of the two. The days just blend in <laughs> when you have these hours. You know what I'm talking about. So uh, she looks at the label on the vitamin water that she just purchased, and she's reading all the labels. And the flavor that both she and my son like are is a flavor called Triple X. And she's reading me all the ingredients. She says, no erythritol. I said, okay, it's all good things in there, you know. The sweetener that they use in that triple X flavor is monk fruit, which is so far we haven't seen anything bad about it. Okay, fine. I said, but I checked the label on the lemon vitamin waters that are in the refrigerator, and it says erythritol on the label. So maybe you limit those. Maybe just give them the triple X if those are the ones he likes anyway. And she says, really? And I said, yeah. So she goes over to the refrigerator, takes the vitamin water, the lemon vitamin water that she drinks almost every day, looks at the ingredients, and she sees, sure enough, I'm correct. There's erythritol in the lemon vitamin water. And she says, I'm just blown away that they have two different sets of ingredients. One has it and one doesn't. I said, well, I guess, you know, you use different things to produce the different flavors. So maybe you just give them the triple X. She said, hmm, it's very interesting. So then she goes to our cupboard and takes out the a six-pack or a 12-pack of vitamin water that she also recently published, I mean, uh, published, purchased. And she sees that this new batch of vitamin water, zero, the vitamin water with no calories, has a blue label. It's a different label than the one that's in our refrigerator. She reads the ingredients. There's no erythritol in this version of the vitamin water. So I looked online to see if there was some announcement about vitamin water taking erythritol out of its ingredients for the vitamin water zero. I mean, I'll look quickly, but I didn't see anything. But sure enough, I think that's exactly what happened here. Because she bought this older batch of vitamin water, and it had erythritol in it. She buys this newer newer batch of the same flavor, new label, and now there's no erythritol in it. So I don't know if they took this out. I'm curious if anybody knows or if anybody has any insight to this or if they've noticed this with other... Other products, products that used to have erythritol in it, but then after this study came out, uh, no longer does. Because I, I found it pretty interesting that um, there was erythritol and now it's now it's not there. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222.
So I got a new computer recently. Well, I should say it was uh, gifted to me by uh, my mother uh, back in December as a Christmas present, which I appreciate because my old computer crapped out. And I'm still kind of getting the hang of it, but I more or less got it. And an interesting thing occurred to me yesterday. I type a lot of my notes in Microsoft Word. Now, my go-to font is Courier New, and I like it. It's kind of it used to be the standard. Now, by the way, they're they're ready to have a, a riot at the State Department because of the State Department's transition in font from Times New Ro- Roman to Courier, not Courier, uh, uh, Arial. Or, um, no, something else. Uh, it's uh, Calibri. That's the new one at the State Department. So I like Courier New, and that's the one I use. You get an email from me, it'll be Courier New. But a lot of people like Times New Roman. That's my second favorite. But I had made Courier New my default font on my Microsoft Word documents. But an interesting thing happened. For the last 24 to 48 hours, Whenever I open a document, it won't let me type Courier New. The only three fonts, the only two fonts that it shows as available options are Calibri and Calibri Lite. So I don't know if Microsoft Word changed something there. Or maybe I need to restart the computer, which I haven't done because I'm working with, I have all these tabs open on my uh Google Chrome, and then I have all these documents open in Microsoft Word, and I'm typing different notes on there. So I, uh, I'm wondering if maybe if I just simply restart this, um, I'll get my default font back. But it's very weird to only be able to write in Calibri. I feel like I'm I'm uh, I'm typing the wrong thing. I keep going um, I keep going on and uh, trying to adjust it, but it's not letting me adjust it, which is a very A very strange thing. All right. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame uh, coming up in about 15 minutes. If you want to start queuing up, you can. But if you want to be heard on anything else we're talking about, you certainly can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I got great feedback um, to my interview with James Rosen uh, that aired on Friday. So thank you to everybody that uh, wrote to me on that. And uh, I, what, was, what I was very pleased about is even a lot of people that didn't like Scalia or weren't crazy about Scalia, they said that they found that interview with James Rosen very informative. So if you didn't get to hear it, you can uh, go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just search um, Frank Morano interviews and more. And that will bring you just the interviews that we do on this show, uh, including that interview with James Rosen. So you can uh, you could check that out at uh, at your leisure uh, because uh, I thought it was really interesting. I certainly learned a lot about the life and times of um, of Justice Scalia. Oh, so I mentioned finally getting around to watching uh, Car Wash. I will also say for the Star Trek fans among us that I am now caught up in the current season, and I believe this is the final season of Star Trek Picard. And I am enjoying this season immensely. Last season I thought was kind of cool. Um, you know, I love alternate timelines. I thought last season started off great, and it had some cool Borg stuff, which is interesting. But I thought the bulk of last season was was pretty weak, honestly. 
But uh, I am enjoying this season immensely. I think it is Star Trek at its finest. And, uh, I mean, Patrick Stewart, who, as I understand, is also an executive producer of this uh, of this series, he is just masterful. Absolutely masterful. But really the, the highlight, he was masterful last year in the season that I wasn't crazy about, is the story. The story of this season in Picard is great. So if you haven't seen it yet, I uh, do highly recommend it. All right. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention, last night, I, you know, I'm a serial sneezer, meaning I'll sneeze not just once, I'll sneeze twice. Last night I sneezed three times, and then a funny thing happened. I mean, I've been feeling great. Not a hint of cold or anything at all. But after I sneezed, I began to feel, and this is just maybe 8 o'clock last night, 8.30. I think I was watching The Simpsons while making some notes for the show. After I sneezed, I kind of felt like I had a cold coming on. So I'm hoping I'm not getting a cold. I'm gonna when I go home, I'm gonna drown myself in uh, a combination of vitamin C and uh, St. John's Wort and Zycam, just on the on the off chance that I do have a cold coming on. But uh, I sincerely hope uh, that's uh, that's not the case. But um, it's uh, you know uh, that's the last thing I have time for right now. I, I still do feel it, just in the back of my nose. Hopefully I don't sound any different. All right. Uh, we'll do f- 15 seconds of fame, and uh, well, we'll have some time, actually. So I'll, I have some time to comment on some other random things that are on my mind. So I'll do that as well. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Terrific song from uh, a very loyal listener of ours and a contributor uh, to our show, Musically, the great Andy B. And, um, you know, he passed away after suffering from Parkinson's for a while. Uh, And he was a great guy, and I miss him as a listener and a frequent caller to the show. And, um, you know, I mentioned, I guess on Thursday or Friday, that uh, he had passed away due to Parkinson's. And another listener who listens every day wrote to me saying, you don't die from Parkinson's. He quoted Michael J. Fox, who initially said this. You don't die from Parkinson's. You die with it. 
So uh, I don't know the exact the exact situation when it came to Andy B's health, but uh, yeah, I didn't mean to be any less enthusiastic that people should continue living as thoroughly as they can uh, when they have Parkinson's. But uh, so I guess that's an important distinction. Not of Parkinson's, you die with it. All right. Uh, hey, a little bit of news that we should mention. The other side of midnight proudly presents breaking news. Breaking news out of Thailand. Thailand has dissolved its parliament. Ahead of what's expected to be a fiercely contended general contested general election scheduled for May, the Prime Minister's new United Thai Nation Party will be challenged mainly by the Fu Thai Party, led by the former Prime Minister, a billionaire who was deposed by a military coup. Back in 2006. You remember that? That was a it was a big deal back in the day. So we'll see where this goes. You know, that's the thing with the parliamentary systems. I think there's a lot to like about parliamentary systems, particularly the ones that have proportional representation, like in uh, Italy or uh, Israel or Japan. But the fact that they can just dissolve the government and call for new elections, I, I think it does inject a little bit of instability to the to the governing process. I mean, if you look at Israel, I think they've had six sets of elections in four years. And think of the cost to the taxpayer of that. For all our faults as a democracy, and there are many, uh, we at least have elections at regularly scheduled intervals for the most part, for the most part. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. In a couple of minutes, we will do... 15 seconds of fame. You can email me, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. Speaking of television, it's the last thing I'll say. My wife uh, has been a real trooper in terms of watching Cheers. And we're now up to the 11th season of Cheers. And we're almost done with it. And it's almost become a chore for her, having to sit through Cheers. So... We generally like to have one half-hour show to watch and one one-hour show. And so I said, all right, honey, you know, you're such a good wife. Why don't you pick an hour show from my list and you can, you know, we'll, we'll watch that along with Cheers. So I have a list of shows on my phone at all times. that, And, and it's many shows. There are probably 150 shows on here that I'm told are great, that everyone has said I would absolutely love. But I have never seen one minute of one episode of. So, uh, I mean, and very popular shows. Shows like Walking Dead, um, The Borges, Game of Thrones, Dexter, Orange is the New Black, Modern Family, um, Shameless, The Blacklist, Downton Abbey. I've never seen any of these shows. And so I said, go ahead. Why don't you pick one from the list? So she picks a show that a lot of people have said is the greatest show of all time. Uh, the Wire. Uh, and so we watched the first episode of The Wire. And I uh, I liked it. But just after watching that first show, there's no way that I'm saying it's the best show of all time. Whereas with, with um, The Sopranos, you can absolutely tell 
with one episode that that was the greatest show of all time. Frank, I, I will say, give The Wire some I will. Time, no, we're not going to abandon it. But Absolutely. it's a great show. No, no, no. I've, everyone says, and including a lot of people that I really respect. Uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, to getting getting a lot out of it because people people do say it's it's great. And, you know, if you look at the reviews of the best TV series ever, that's always one that, uh, you know, that pops right up. All right, 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. Somebody writes, somebody sent me an SMS text message, and you can do so, 816-8-MORANO. That's 816-8-M-O-R-A-N-O. That um, the Theater Development Fund, which controls the TKTS booths, offers tickets to most Broadway shows at $25 or $35 per seat all the time. Check it out. The, the thing with the TKTS booth is, as I understand it, you have to go that day and get tickets for the shows that day. But that's a good thing. Uh, if that if it's as little as that, I thought it was half price. I didn't realize it was 25 or $35. If that's the case, that is a very good deal. And it's exactly in line with what I'm uh, I'm talking about. All right. Um, without further ado, why don't we give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Hey. Stephen is in Westchester. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans like the foam. Mike in Montclair. Good morning, Frank. I'm a nine-year-old Asian boy with the world's largest pen cap collection. <laughs> Next time you misplace a cap, check your ears first. And if you still can't find it, call me. I'll send you what you need. Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, they did a little research about these New Jersey whales. It turns out they're Italian. Every time they wash up on the beach, the ring of Tony sets in. <laughs> Frank in Blue Mountain. Yeah, it's another prediction moment, Frank. We hit the 31731. Now we hit 30385. Have a great day. Raji. To feed and uh, uh, accommodate the recent illegal invaders and prolong the Russo-Ukraine war, our poor senior citizens' food stamps and other benefits are being cut. cut. Felix in New Jersey. Balance the nature, a complete scam. Read the FDA warning about balance of nature. Tony in Queens. Yes, you know why you have the best ratings? Because you got no competition. Tell the Messiah to stop putting that mare on in that phony windbag from Long Island. Pete in East Village. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. Aaron in Mount Vernon. Listen, Frank, uh, uh, The Wire is so much better than The Sopranos. you got to watch The Wire. Okay. Well, look, uh, I'm, we're, we're giving it a chance, right? As I just said to Kenneth, we're going to watch it. Uh, I'm not abandoning it anytime soon. 800-848-9222. Leslie is in Forest Hills. Yes, I am. What's on your mind, Leslie? you got 15 seconds. Uh, no, I want to be uh, on the contest for the uh, $1,000 minute. $1, ah, well, so um, you're early for tomorrow. you got 23 and a half hours to prepare for tomorrow's contest. Or <laughs> okay. um, you can okay. get a, a time machine and go back in time a half hour and uh, call us again. But I appreciate that, 
Leslie. Yeah, it's it's um, you missed it. You missed it. You snooze, you lose. That's the uh, that's the goal. See, my nose is running now. Now I'm starting to worry. I am getting a cold. That's the last thing I need. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222 is our phone number. Actually, we no, no more time for uh, for calls today. Uh, if you want to email me, you can, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Hey, if you're in the New York area and listening on WABC, stay tuned to the great Noam Layden as part of uh, Talking the News. He does a great job. He's the best newsman in the business, at least in the New York area. And uh, he is without peer. And he, he's interesting. And he just sounds good as well. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Uh, Back tomorrow with Julian Assange's father, as well as a few other surprise guests as well. Uh, Until then, Frank Morano, good day.